This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Uh, but it is for me. I am not going to be here tomorrow. So uh, this is my final show of the week. Uh, Curtis Lewa will be here tomorrow. So we're going to do some of the things uh, on this particular program that we generally do on Fridays. We're going to do denunciations in a bit. And we're going to begin the program with... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. anything. Uh, That's right. Uh, If you want to give me a call at 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we will give you an opportunity to ask any question on any subject. Uh, uh, You name the topic. You You have a political question. You have a question about Atlantic City or gambling. You have a cocktail question question about Star Trek, cinema, space aliens, wrestling. Uh, the sky's the limit. You have a question about the uh, the radio business. You have a question about me, anything I've done. You want to know who my third grade teacher was? Now's the time. The one thing I would ask is uh, if you have gotten a question asked before, I would say wait 15 or 20 minutes and give people that may be hearing this for the first time because according to the numbers we're seeing, we're getting new listeners all the time. Uh, Give people that have not had an opportunity to hear this segment before an opportunity to ask their question first. And what we mean by this, and again, I hate to repeat this for people that listen all five days a week, especially on Fridays, is we want this to be an opportunity to ask questions that you're genuinely curious about. What are questions? A question is not a five-minute diatribe founded by right? A question is not... Don't you think, and then a 10-minute diatribe. No. A question, a good clue that you're asking a question are words like what, where, why, do, how, when. Those are all pretty good indications that you're about to about to ask a question. Does, do, those are all question words. So, uh, and, you know, again, I try to discourage trivia questions because they don't really become... Great talk topics. And the idea, what I love about this, is that a lot of times people will ask questions and then the people listening to this hour will go and ask questions of their friends, their families, their neighbors over the weekend. So that's what I'd like to do. And in order to sweeten the pot, whoever comes up with the most interesting question... Whoever comes up with the most creative question, whoever comes up with a question that's the most offbeat, the most different, the most thought-provoking, in the eyes of uh, Kenneth 
Matt Blaze and Alex Barnard. That's right. Alex Barnard is back. It is a very special occasion, a very rare day where Alex Barnard is coming to work. We didn't think we'd uh, we'd live to see it this week, but here we yes, are. Yes, that is correct. 800-848-9222. But anyway, those three gentlemen will be the judge of the uh, the best question, and we will give you a prize, uh, whoever comes up with the best question. All right, 800-848-9222. That is 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with William in Asbury Park. Hello, William. Good morning. morning. Uh, I hear the intro music, so I'm assuming you're a fan. Favorite Metallica album and song? Well, it's the one that we play at the top of the hour. Uh, My favorite song is Enter Sandman, and uh, I believe that was their their they had an album by that title as well. So I'm yeah, going I'm I, going you know, with that. That album's load. It's what? I think it's off of the load album, the first one. Ah, no, I see. Oh no, no. I'm you're correct. Both, right? No, you're no, both you're both wrong. Uh, wait, wait, I'm not correct. It was what? called Metallica. Oh, it was, it was just Metallica. a black album. Okay. It's known as the black album. There you go. All right. Well, so that's oh, my okay. favorite. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. I think favorite. you're right. Uh, but uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I just love this song. I don't pretend to be the. Uh, the biggest Metallica fan ever, ever, but they have some good songs. Uh, I like this one. I like, um, but I'm trying to think what else. I like Fade to Black. That's another good Metallica song. I like uh, One, and um, that's really, those are the ones that most immediately come to mind. I don't pretend to be a Metallica expert by any stretch. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank, do you remember, uh, I think it was the Richard Belzer show when Hulk Hogan was on, and he gave uh, Belzer a sweeper hold. Uh, Belzer like, passed out, but then he flew to his feet, and he says, we'll be right back after this. Do you think that was a fake? Because he did sue him. Uh, what do you think about that? you think he really put him asleep with a sweeper hold? Yes, I, I do. We talked show. about this a little bit when Belzer died. And look, um, Belzer got a, a very generous settlement that allowed him to buy uh, a house in France where he was when he died. He, nicked, he named his house in France Shea Hogan. So um, it's uh, it, it was not um, it was not a bit at all. He sued Hogan for five million dollars, and you really can't bring that into a real courtroom without seeing your lawyer get sanctioned if that was something that was predetermined. And there's no way that Hogan or the WWE would have paid anything if it was something that they had done uh, in advance. But uh, no, it was absolutely not a bit. That was real. Okay, Frank, thank you. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jerry is in Edison. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Frank. Um, If the case, hypothetically, if it goes to the Supreme Court uh, of the United States, the prosecution of Trump, and the question is whether it's really a primary political prosecution, it should be thrown out, or whether it's legitimate, um, what do you think Amy Comey Barrett and Kavanaugh, I, I assume those are the two that have to go with Trump. So we know we got three, you know, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. I believe we'll have them. And on the other side, though, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, I'm saying. On the other side, though, I don't think Roberts is going to be with us. So I'm asking you, do you think we got Comey, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, meaning Trump's side, or do you think they're going to split and then we're going to lose 5-4 if you're a Trump voter? I, honestly, I think it's so uh... – premature on the state case uh, for a few reasons. Um, But 
it's not necessarily that premature on the on the documents case. Okay, so I'll, I'll focus on the on the documents case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, because that's being brought in federal court. Because first of all, I think there's a chance that this um, that this Alvin Bragg case in Manhattan could actually be thrown out by the by the judge. If it's not thrown out by the the judge, I think it could be overturned on appeal by the appellate division. If it's not overturned on appeal by the appellate division, I think there's a chance it could be overturned on appeal from the court of appeals. But um, so let, let's put that aside that case because we're a long and I think he could actually be acquitted by the jury in in that case. So there's there's four things that would happen that would obviate the need to go to the federal appellate route but right. with the I mean, federal right. right but the federal case mm-hmm. that would go to a federal appeals court mm-hmm. and then potentially to the um to the supreme court now we all know every justice that uh, has ever sat through a confirmation hearing before the senate they all claim that they don't make decisions based on uh, on politics mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we all know that that is total nonsense that they all do make decisions based on politics. I think what you would see is uh, I think you'd see uh, Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, uh, Alito and Thomas uh, all vote uh, in Trump's favor uh, as far as and Gorsuch. So I don't see you getting less than five at the very at the minimum, depending on what specific legal issues they were arguing. And I'm sure Trump will have a very good constitutional legal team because there's a lot of lawyers that would volunteer their services on that. But no, I think all five of them uh, would be uh, steadfast in support of Trump. Okay, and one last quick one. Favorite fighter. Who's your favorite boxer of all time? Uh, My favorite fighter. Oh, that's a great question. George Foreman. George Foreman. Okay. Good enough. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I was talking about George Foreman yesterday. It's kind of funny how that works out. I, I hadn't had a conversation about George Foreman in, I don't know, months. And all of a sudden I had a conversation about him yesterday. And then I, he's uh, he comes up today. Now, it could have been just because I he's at the top of my mind. But all right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. One open line if you have a question. Manny is in Brooklyn. Hello, Manny. Hey, Frank. What's going on? Well, you know, the usual. All right. All right. So here we go. You're in your house, controlled environment. How come in the wintertime, 60 degrees in your house, you're freezing, but in the summertime, 60 degrees in your house, you're nice and comfortable? You know, that's a good question. I'm assuming that um, that it has to do with air that's seeping in from the outside and that even though you've set the thermostat for 60 degrees, that um, there's still cold air coming in from the outside, uh, even if there's proper insulation. And with summer, I'm assuming that it's because there's warm air seeping in somehow. Uh, but uh, and I, I'm sure the amount of sun that's coming into the house because of the increased sunlight uh, during the summer also plays a role. But uh, I'll be honest, I don't know, Manny. Uh, that's my best hypothesis. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. Uh, what I want to know is, uh, given all the stuff that's happening at Donald Trump, and he put up a website, DonaldTradeTrump.com, where you can go to contribute to him. If Donald Trump gets enough new contributors and he gets enough people to donate and he gets a really heavy pot of money, do, do you... Being that money is a mother's milk of politics, 
do you think that'll help him win and propel him to victory, both I, in the primary I, and the general? You know, I'll be honest, Charlie, uh, and thank you for the call. I actually think Trump needs money less than any other candidate uh, running. You know who needs money to run for president? Asa Hutchinson. You know who needs money to run for president? Uh, Chris Christie. You know who needs money to run for president? Charlie, uh, yeah, uh, Chris, uh, not, uh, I don't know, uh, Nikki Haley. That's the name that I was looking for. Trump gets so much free publicity that I don't think he needs the kind of money that the other candidates do. And look, you saw that in 2016. He was dramatically outspent by all the other candidates. Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, uh, everybody, uh, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, everybody had more money than him. And yet he trounced them all. Uh, because money matters less for Trump in the current climate than any other candidate. He needs some money to hire a campaign staff and to do maybe, you know, have a, a little bit of a, a ground game. But I think he needs money less than anybody else. Honestly, I think if Trump did not spend a dime between now and the first primary, I'll be honest, I think the result would be exactly the same. Because I think almost all the people that are going to be voting in the forthcoming primaries and maybe even in the general election, I think they already know who they're going to vote for. And Trump is a known commodity to them. When you're universally known, which Trump is, he's one of the he's probably the best known person on the face of the earth. And when you're universally known, you don't need money to buy name recognition. So, no, I don't think uh, that uh, the donations, uh, which have seen an uptick in new donors, I don't think it's going to play a major factor in this. And you saw what happened in 2020. Trump had a lot more money in 2020. Can you really say that that played a role in having a different outcome on the election? I don't think you can. 800-848-9222, Carl is in North Carolina. Hello, Carl. Oh, oh, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, um, listen, I um, I listen to you uh, very often because I grew up in uh, New York, um, in Westchester, actually. Oh. And can I – I'm just – this is not a question. It's just a comment. I – my – people keep talking about race. Why – I one thing – it's not a question. It's just a comment. Uh, I, all right. When well, I, grew well, up, I want to stick with questions if we can. Thank you. If you are uh, calling with a comment, we have 19 hours a week that are there for you to comment. Where I'm asking for comments on a wide variety of things, on anything and everything. Um, This is the one hour of the week where we ask for questions. So ask questions. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I remember I was uh, covering a trial one time, a federal criminal case. And the defense attorney, who's now a judge, actually a great guy, very good lawyer, but the defense attorney is cross-examining an FBI agent. And this FBI agent was a real piece of work. And it was clear to me, and I think most people and probably the jury too, that this FBI agent was lying. And so the the defense attorney stands there with a stack of 302s. Uh, and other 3,500 material. I'll, I'll spare you the definitions for those of you that aren't lawyers, but basically the records of conversations. 
And he says to the FBI agent, I will sit here, I will stand here all day and go through every single one of these. And the judge, I thought, gave one of the best retorts to that comment from the defense attorney. The judge in that case said, do not threaten the witness. Just ask questions. That's the way I feel about this this hour that we spend together. Just ask questions. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Lauren is in New Jersey. Hello, Lauren. Hi. Uh, A question about the treaty that uh, President Biden signed regarding equity with the World Health Organization. Do you have any updates on that? Uh, no, actually, I know uh, very, very little uh, about that. Um, uh, that is, um, but I, I don't think that would have to be approved by the uh, U.S. Senate. So I think it would probably be a, a tough road to hoe in terms of uh, getting a treaty that's uh, that focused on diversity and equity uh, approved by the U.S. Senate. No, I hope you're right because. Uh, uh, um, uh, Tedros Jesus, who's the president of the World Health Organization, is working on it in Geneva. Yeah, uh, I uh, so yeah, I I don't believe that uh, that it is going to uh, get approved by the Senate if Biden did sign it. I didn't even realize he signed it actually. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Two open lines. If you have questions on any subject, we'll continue with Ask Frank Anything straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is another Metallica song, Master of Puppets. I like this one a lot, too. You know why? Because this was Michael Savage's theme song for a long time. And I feel the same way about this song, the way I hope people feel about Enter Sandman, is when you hear it, you just immediately prep your brain to be amused and intellectually stimulated. And hopefully people feel the same way about Enter Sandman. But uh, when, I, when I hear Master of Puppets, I, the next words that I'm waiting for are the announcer giving a warning about psychological nudity and then the gruff Bronx bo- voice, Bronx accent of uh, Dr. Michael Savage. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800 800- Eight four eight nine two two two. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. I have two questions for you. The first one is about your your boy Carmine. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been an occasion, Frank, where Carmine happened to listen to your voice on the radio? I know he's not old enough to know what you do for a living, but I just thought it'd be kind of a funny thing and what his reaction might have been. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, uh, no, I, I, I don't believe uh, I don't believe he's ever had a, a noticeable reaction to hearing me on the, on the radio. Sure. Okay. Now here's the here's the question I have for you. The other week um, I'd asked you about Ron Cooper, and you said you were going to reach out to him, and you said that you wouldn't. Of course, you wouldn't beg him to be on if he didn't want to be on. But so it, it elicited me a, a sort of question. What is the hardest interview you've had to work for to get, whether you were on the production staff or 
you are behind the mic. Hmm. And, and truly, is there anybody on the planet that you might beg to get as an interview on your show? Oh, um, well, the, the latter, let me a- answer the latter question first. So uh, there's a few people that I would really love to interview, especially for a long-form interview for an hour, maybe two hours, and then call the best uh, the best parts of it. I would love to have on uh, Mel Brooks. I'd love to have on uh, George Lucas. I'd love to have on uh, Woody Allen. Uh, I'd love to have on Ric Flair. Uh, I'm shocked that Ric Flair's never been on this program. Um, so I, I would feel pretty comfortable begging all of those people. Beyond that, let me think who else. Um, uh, that might that might be that might be it uh, in terms of people that I would really beg uh, to be to come on. In terms of folks that uh, that I, I had to work hard to get. Hmm. Um, well, not because of his unwillingness to do an interview, but just because I had to jump through all sorts of hoops with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I did a series of interviews with uh, Tommy Gioli while he was uh, in federal prison. And that was uh, that was very difficult to pull off uh, logistically. So I had to work pretty hard to uh, to have those interviews uh, come to fruition. Happy Easter, Frank. Thank you, Igor. Uh, happy holidays to you as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Gary is in California. Hello, Gary. Hi, Frank. Um, I just have a real simple question. If you had a choice between the two, would you rather know everything about theology or everything about science? I, um, you know, I think it's a difficult question to answer because honestly, I don't know. I don't think you can really separate the two entirely. I, I think understanding and knowledge of one really significantly complements the other. But if I had to pick, um, hmm. see, theology covers a lot of ground, but so does science. If I had so to pick, yeah. um, I guess I yeah it is it is a good question I I hope our judges are taking note on that I I I don't know that I can I'm gonna say I'm gonna say theology because I feel like um I feel like with theology it's a lot more than than facts which of course it is but it's also a lot of wisdom within the within the uh, the stories and within the facts and within the dogmas of of what you're studying as well. So if I had to pick among the two, I would pick uh, theology because with science, it's a lot of knowledge. But I feel like theology is a good blend of knowledge and, and wisdom. But it's a good question, though, Gary. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Phyllis is in Queens. Hello, Phyllis. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. Happy holidays. You okay, too. so my question is about digital money. Biden signed an order 
uh, about a year and a half ago that all of our money is going to be switched over to digital. It won't be the dollar anymore in the future. What can we do about this? This really takes away our freedom of how we use our money because they can say what we're allowed to use or not on a debit card. So uh, my understanding is that executive order that Biden signed, it it didn't exactly do what you just described. It, It basically ensured the responsible development of uh, of digital assets and it basically it would create it created a um a strategy to protect consumers and to um you know to address i viewed them as shysters and i think that's a i think that's a good thing but there's no mandate of converting dollars to digital currency Oh, I see. I thought we were supposed to get a debit card that would then we can take that. They'll, they'll be monitoring it. No, can... uh, no. Believe me, uh, Ralph Nader, who we've had on the show a bunch of times, decrying all these stores that are no longer taking cash. He would have been apoplectic if there was ever a a um, a, a bill or an executive order like that. But if you email me, Phyllis, I'll send you the executive order, and you could see uh, for yourself okay. what it says. Uh, my email is Frank Morano at wabcradio dot com. Thanks, Phyllis. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Patrice is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patrice. Oh, Frank, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I started to ask you a particular question having to do with um, religion, but I think it's better for me to ask kind of an, as an apology. Do you know what is the smallest uh, bones that we have in our body, possibly? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if, what, 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 what part of our body? I'm guessing the ear, but I don't know. Yes. Oh, perfect. All right. Fa- okay. Have, have a great holiday. Thank or you. Holy day. Thank you. Uh, likewise. 800-848-9222. See, you see where the trivia questions don't really necessarily go anywhere. So, I mean, I was either going to be right. And at which point the conversation is over or I'd be wrong. And she said, oh no, it's not the ear. It's the pinky. And then the conversation's over. There's no, I mean, it's, it, that's an obscure, trivial fact. I mean, whatever, Patrice is a nice lady. Uh, but uh, I'm just saying, when you're conceptualizing questions, try to think of something a little more open-ended, I would think. So, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Joy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Joy. Oh, hi. Good evening. Um, I wanted to ask the question, why does Curtis Sleva only have 45 minutes when everyone else has an hour or more, with the exception of O'Reilly's 15 minutes? Um, well, I think, well, he gets 45 minutes instead of an hour because of that O'Reilly uh, 15 minutes. But if you look at the amount of time Curtis is on uh, WABC in New York, he's on more than anyone Except maybe, no, yeah, he is on the station more than anyone. So he's on for uh, essentially an hour a day, maybe a little less than an hour a day. So figure four hours a week um, in that noon slot. Then he's on for another six hours Saturday morning. That's 10 hours. Then he's on for another six hours Sunday morning. That's 16 hours. Then he's on for another hour with Anthony Weiner. That's 17 hours. And then he's on for another three hours Sunday night. So that's at 20 hours. Same as more than anybody except for Sid Rosenberg and me. And then 
he fills in for everybody. He's filling in for me tomorrow. I heard him filling in for Rudy Giuliani yesterday. He fills in for, I think he's filling in for the morning show on Friday, at least for the first hour. So I, I don't think Curtis is suffering uh, by a long stretch from a lack of airtime at all. In fact, I think Curtis would probably do well with a little bit less airtime so that he could actually maybe get some rest. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Rochelle. Hello, Mike. Oh, good morning, Frank. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I have a question. Have you ever tried heirloom eggs? Uh, um, Spell that for me. Well, you would would pronounce it heirloom, but it's... Heirloom, oh. H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M. I, no, I don't think I have. I don't think I have. You should look for them in the grocery store. Try to find free range and and, and you know pasture raised. They're light. They have a light blue shade, and they they have a unique taste. They're much really tastier than regular eggs. Do most grocery stores carry them? The specialty ones do. Interesting. I am going to. Um... I am going to check that out, Mike. Thank you. Uh, I did not know that. Heirloom eggs. I'm going to check that out. They, I'm looking at them. They do look bluish. That is kind of cool. I'm always into weird types of eggs. 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, this is an alternate history question. Mm. Now, the assassination anniversary of Martin Luther King just happened on April 4th, and the assassination anniversary of RFK is coming up in June. Um, If those two events had not happened in 1968, do you think America would be a significantly better country today or worse, or would it have made any difference at all? That's a good question, right? So I'm thinking with those two leaders specifically, that uh, maybe there's a uh, a better chance that we our, America's participation in the Vietnam War would have um, would have ended much more quickly than it did, uh, because I think Kennedy was a very uh, Robert Kennedy was a very powerful force governmentally. And Martin Luther King was a very powerful por- force in terms of moving public opinion. The one area where I think maybe we'd be better, I'm going to say the two areas where I think the country would be better off, significantly and noticeably so, is I think one of the things that, and I understand it, um, and I hear it from you, I hear it from myself, I hear it from almost everybody that calls in, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum, or even if they're non-political. One of the things that I find is that almost everybody I meet in this country these days is so incredibly cynical. They don't believe anything. They are skeptical of everything. And I guess to some extent that's good. But I find the cynicism among the public so potentially toxic at times that I think it leads to a lot of negative consequences and a lack of willingness to uh, to trust other people and to work with folks that may come from different backgrounds. The other area where I think we would be better off if neither of those two men had been killed was uh, I think uh, we would probably be in a better place in terms of uh, race relations these days. If there's no Martin Luther King assassination, it's difficult to see um, there being a Newark riot or a Watts riot. It's difficult to see 
a lot of racial incidents that have occurred since 1968. And um, I don't know that. Um, so uh, and if if uh, so, that's kind of where I come down. I think we'd be better off because we'd be a much less cynical country. I think we would be a be- better off because we would have ended our participation in Vietnam earlier, saved a lot of lives that way. And I think race relations would be in a better place because I think Martin Luther King and maybe this is just our romanticizing of him because he's become such a larger than life figure in death. I think Martin Luther King, unlike a lot of the uh, so-called black leaders of today, he wasn't interested in being a racial arsonist. He seemed genuinely interested in racial harmony. Now, if there were racial harmony, what do you think Hawk Newsom from Black Lives Matter would do? What do you think um, people like, you know, you used the example you always used to cite was Al Sharpton. But if you look at how radical so many of the uh, leaders of groups like Black Lives Matter and other groups, not just them, but how radical they are. Sharpton, as strange as it may as it may sound, is one of the more moderate black leaders in the country these days. I mean, if you are if there's a racial incident you know, of uh, an innocent black man killed by four white cops. It's caught on video and the cops acted wrong, clearly, on the video. And you hear Hawk Newsom's coming to town and there's going to be a a cadre of Black Lives Matter protests. What do you start doing? If you're the mayor, if you're a a person who lives in that neighborhood, you start panicking. You think they're going to destroy the the town and there's going to be riots. But these days, anyway, I'm not talking about the Al Sharpton of Tawana Brawley or the Al Sharpton of Freddie's Fashion Martin. I'm no fan of Al Sharpton. But these days, if Al Sharpton announces he's coming to town, you at least say, oh, okay, you know, he'll give a speech, he'll do a march, he'll speak loudly, but at least he's someone that's not going to foment riots. He's someone that at least, uh, as crazy as he might be in some respects, uh, at least someone he's, he's, uh, he's someone that can be at least spoken to. So um, I think Martin Luther King struck me as a much more mature leader, even at a younger age. And I I don't think he would have kind of played the gutter ball politics of a lot of today's so-called black leaders. I also don't think he would have engaged in a lot of the shakedown politics that people like Jesse Jackson engaged in. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. John is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, John. Hello there. Hey, if you weren't doing radio, what would you be doing? Hmm. Well, um, what would you like to do? Are we are we taking television off the table? Ah, uh, same thing, broadcast. Okay, so nothing nothing in broadcasting. I might um I might uh, I might be in politics in some capacity, either as uh, as an elected official or as a uh, or a behind the scenes person. Or uh, I could see myself being a um, uh, a teacher, a teacher or or some sort of professor that also writes uh, that also writes books. So uh, that's that's kind of what I would like to be doing if I weren't doing this. But let let me not um, not, let me not give any of our bosses any any ideas. This is very much what I'd like to be doing. No, I know that. I just that was just a question. Yeah. Thank you, John. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave. Yeah. How you doing, man? Good. Uh, It 
my question is, if you had one wish granted to you and you had the power to do anything you wanted, what would you do? Would you bring back a historical figure? Would you live forever? Would you be rich? Would you have world peace? What would you do? Well, uh, my answer to this has been the same since I was about um, 12 years old. And I learned of the uh, wish that God offered to grant uh, King Solomon. And Solomon, um, he asked God for wisdom. And that, since I, since I learned of that story, that has always been my wish. Whenever I go past a wishing well, that is my wish. And I throw a coin in. Whenever I uh, blow out a candle on a birthday cake, that is my wish. I have a personal email address that doesn't say frank.morano. It says wisdom.morano because I am on um, a perpetual quest for wisdom. And if I had one wish granted, uh, that's what it would be. It would be uh, for endless wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Marie is on Long Island. Hello, Marie. I'm on Long Island. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Thank you for my magnet, Frank. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, love. It's on my refrigerator. Excellent. Anyway, if this country could do without the electoral vote, would you want that? Would you go for that? I don't know how that would work out, but there's always been talk about that. I, I know I personally would like to see to get rid of it because I know you know how the electoral vote was in, invented or, or created, however. But if we could do without the electoral vote, then it would be popular vote, correct? Would you go for that? Well, I think there What's are— your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I'm about to say. Thank you, uh, Marie. Uh, there are a number of alternatives— that uh, I would like to see to the current system. For starters, I don't believe that there should be faithless electors, right? So if you're elected as a presidential elector pledged to Joe Biden, I don't think you should be able, uh, I don't think you should be legally permitted to vote for Hillary Clinton. And we've seen these faithless electors do their thing over the years. That's a non-starter for me. I um, would love to see a because I don't like the current system at all for a bunch of reasons. One, it's one of the few systems where the person that actually loses the election can uh, win the election. There's not another country in the world that um, elects its president this way, uh, where you can actually lose the popular vote and win. And I'm talking about a non-parliamentary system. But additionally... New York's a blue state. California's a blue state. Texas is a red state. That means those states, the uh, anything that's not a battleground state, candidates are not coming here except to look for money. So I want candidates to fight for my vote and address my issues. You think it's uh, an accident that we had a very unique Cuban immigration policy? Of course not. It's because of the Cuban, uh, the, the power of the Cuban vote in a state like Florida, which for many years was a swing state. You think it's a um, you think it's an accident that we have ethanol subsidies? No, it's the fact that Iowa is such an important state in both the primaries and the general election. So I would love to see a system where um, people have to fight for my vote. So I'd love to see some sort of alternative. For instance, 
Um, I'd love to see uh, some states have it where it's by congressional district. I'd love it if New York had that. I'd certainly prefer that to the current system where, uh, meaning if my district, my congressional district votes overwhelmingly for XYZ candidate, if the rest of the state goes the other way, my vote essentially doesn't count. So I'd love to see it sort of by congressional district. I'd also love to see some sort of ranked choice voting system um, where, you know, where you have that. But um, I used to favor proportional electoral um, college voting, where let's say you get 5% of the vote you, or of a state's vote, you get 5% of that state's electors. I no longer favor that because I think that could lend, lead to a situation where you see uh, extremist third-party candidates like a George Wallace or a Strom Thurmond essentially being the swing vote in terms of deciding who gets elected president. So um, if you're giving me a blanket choice of either keep the Electoral College or go with the popular vote, then I'm picking the popular vote. But I think there's a middle ground. I think maybe Congressional District Electoral College voting is one such middle ground. But there are a number of others as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good evening, Mr. Moreno. Question. What... What five presidents either wrestled or had karate belts? Wrestled or have karate belts? So this is a tr- another trivia question. Yeah, I just okay. um, I well, just so you got right, no right. So you have um, you have uh, Lincoln, you have Washington. Uh, I'm assuming you have um, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, those three, in terms of uh, well, are we counting Donald Trump as having wrestled because of his participation in WrestleMania? That's what I was I was thinking for. And but, then uh, uh, it's in terms of the fifth. Uh, I'm not sure who the fifth would be. But I said two had belts in martial arts. Right. So I don't one know. Who Who is it? One is Teddy Roosevelt. When he traveled to the world, he did judo. OK. But uh, the other one was fairly recently. And uh, he had a green belt in Taekwondo. Was it Nixon? That's a very good guess. No, even beyond that, early, uh, later, later, much later. All right, just just tell me because we have a lot of people here. I'm sorry, apologies. Okay, it was Barack Obama. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Good morning, Reverend morning. Romano. And Thank a you. very happy Easter holiday to you and your family. Likewise. Thank you. Um, I have uh, two questions, um, one about Easter present, one about Easter past. Uh, the question I have for you is how do you and your family celebrate and how is it different from when you were a kid? And the second question I have is, say, when I was a kid, like back in the 60s, um, it seemed that with Easter, you know, everyone went to church and had dinner, but also it was about it seemed like everything was about getting dressed up at Easter. People got new dresses, new suits. And, um, of course, the, the parade and the ladies had the hats, and it was all a very big deal. And that seems to be something that we don't do anymore. And you feel that, like, you know, it was a lot more, and you know, that added to it in the past. And now, you know, it, we don't really have that. 
I don't know. I do think people uh, tend to uh, get dressed up for for Easter and uh, put on Easter bonnets and and new outfits. And at least the people that I see uh, in church and in and in my family life, they, they wear a lot of nice uh, Easter outfits. So in terms of what we're doing, my Easter plans sort of vary because. Um, my parents are divorced, so what I generally try to do is I will go um, one Easter with my dad's family and then one Easter with uh, my mom, and then whoever I don't spend Easter with, I will spend uh, Palm Sunday with that year. This year, um, my uh, my mother's away this week from Palm Sunday to Easter, so I'm not seeing her for, for either. So this year, I'm going to be with my dad's family. We're going out to a, a restaurant in uh, in Manhattan, and it differs from when I was a kid because we never did that. Uh, we would usually go to uh, my grandmother's house or my aunt's house, and uh, people would uh, people would cook. So that's the, the big difference from my perspective. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Hello, Frank. Uh, I want to know: Did you ever have an embarrassing moment in grade school that you never forgot? You know, grade school. I'll take it off the air. Okay, thank you. Let me think here. I'm sure I have. Uh, most of my embarrassing moments involved me not doing my homework or being unprepared for class in some way and being yelled at by the teacher. I remember one such moment. I wasn't that embarrassed, but I was somewhat embarrassed. When I was in fifth grade, I I didn't do my homework, and my teacher, Mr. Vigiano, sent me over to the kindergarten classes to spend the rest of the day in there because I was clearly not mature enough to be in the fifth grade, so he sent me to kindergarten to spend the day there that was pretty embarrassing <laughs> to um have to deal with the the glares and questions of all these six-year-olds um when you know you're you're 10 years old or whatever whatever age you are in the fifth grade that was pretty embarrassing um i'll go with that i'll go with that i can't think of one i'm sure there were other embarrassing moments but uh, that is the one that most – that's the one that most immediately comes to mind. Three open lines. If you have a question on any subject, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Because there's a question in the title. And for the next five minutes, we are asking you 
to ask questions. 800-848-9222 as we wrap up the last few minutes of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Let's say hello to George on Long Island. Hello, George. Hi. Do you think RFK announcing in the Democratic uh, primary will have an effect? And could you get him as a guest? Yeah. He's been terrific. He's been on this show before, and uh, I just actually reached out to... Uh, his publicist a couple hours ago to invite him on as a guest, I do think it will have an effect because uh, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that are attracted to his anti-vax message, which will get him money, which will get him publicity. But I I retweeted before I even knew he was going to be running for president. I retweeted something that he put out there yesterday about Saudi Arabia. He was right on the money. And if that's the kind of thing that he's going to be saying about foreign policy, even though I don't agree with him on vaccines, I, I, you know, I find that kind of talk very appealing. And I would certainly consider potentially voting for him if he was running against someone like Biden. Additionally, um, he's been very open minded, unlike a lot of other members of the Kennedy family, to uh, issues related to reopening these conspiracies. And uh, he has spent his entire life as an advocate for environmental justice. And I think with climate change being such a hot issue now among Democratic primary voters and Biden trying to move to the center on energy related issues and oil and that kind of thing. You know, last year in this country, we pumped more oil in this country than any year in the history of this country. And uh, Biden just went forward with another oil uh, thing. And I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. I think we should be pumping domestic uh, oil. But the, but at looking at it from a political analyst perspective, there's a lot of Democratic primary voters that don't believe that. And I think they'd be buying what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is selling. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to... Uh, Joe in Manhattan. Hello, Joe. Uh, hi, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I've got a question for you regarding uh, some of it similar to the earlier question, but not quite. Uh, what are both your most personal and professional, most uncomfortable moments, and how did you get out of them? Oh, uh, professionally, the uncomfortable moments are. Um, are, have always been when there's a major technical problem that you have no control over. That's really uncomfortable. And you mm. got to just uh, do the best you can. You have to sound like you're not totally, totally panicking. Um, most uncomfortable moment on a personal level. You know, it's happened to me a couple of times where I have sent a text message to someone that I did not intend for them. And I'm talking about that person in the text message. That has been um, that causes me a lot of discomfort. Both good questions, though, Joe. All right, um, Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and Alex Barnard. Do you have a uh, a consensus? Gary, California theology or science? There you go. A fine question. Gary in California, call back. We're going to give you a prize of some sort. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I'll try and get to you. No promises. Coming up, I have a question of my own for you, and it has to do with child rearing and education. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. as a school child, I'm thinking mostly in elementary school, but also even in junior high school, and I guess to some extent in high school, I did. I'm trying to think if I always had it, and I think I did. Certainly in all five years or six years of uh, grammar school, after lunch, you would be able to go out into the schoolyard and and play. And um, you think about it, and it is... A nice thing for students. But apparently, the new data suggests that it might be more than just a nice thing for students. See, several years ago, a team of sociologists flew from California to an East Coast school to observe the kindergartner's recess for their research. And the team waited on the playground, but the children never showed up. When they later asked the principal why... He told them that the lunch staff had held the students back as punishment for misbehavior. And I'll be honest, I think I have been part of classes from time to time where I was held back from recess, either me directly or the whole class, because we were talking too much or did something else. Uh, Rebecca London, a sociologist who was on that research team who now teaches at the University of California at Santa Cruz, she told the website 538.com, That just tells you something about the culture of how easy it is to dispense of this really important time for kids for kids at a whim. She says there's no evidence whatsoever that withholding recess elicits any kind of behavior that anybody wants. It's not an evidence based practice. There's no research supporting it at all. What the research, including Miss London's, has shown is just the opposite. The research has shown time and again that recess is extremely important to childhood development and learning. Both the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that children have access to recess. Specialists think the opportunity to play with peers undirected by an adult the kind of play that children get at recess is so critical, and I agree with this, by the way, to development that children should not do without it during the school day. And yet, do you know how many states require schools to provide daily recess to children? Take a guess. How many do you think? Ten. Ten. Uh, Only 10 states require recess at schools. 
This year, Washington and California are considering bills that would, if passed, make it mandatory for schools to provide recess. And these researchers want legislators and educators to know that recess is an important part of the school day, not a break from it. There's no federal agency, not the Department of Education, not the CDC, nobody. There's no federal agency that consistently tracks recess time at schools. But some surveys conducted by states uh, or other advocacy groups show that recess is declining and that students may not be getting all the recess time that's recommended by experts. Other studies show that access to recess is affected by the same class and race aspects that shape a lot of American life. Low-income students and students of color in poor schools tend to have less. So there's less data on how often recess is taken away as a form of punishment, as was the case in that one school that I just mentioned. But it has been well established that black, Latino and American Indian students, especially boys, are more likely to be punished at schools in general and therefore may be disproportionately likely to have their recess taken away. Recess is largely considered optional. School administrators often view it as a privilege for children, not a component of education itself. In the late 90s and in the early 2000s, you had school districts in Atlanta, Chicago, and other cities that eliminated recess entirely. Why they do that? Well, they did it, and it kind of makes sense from their perspective. They did it in favor of extra class time. They said, wait a minute, we're a school. We're supposed to be teaching children. What's the best use of our time for 40 minutes? Is, to have, is it to have children go and run around on the monkey bars and the seesaw and the sliding pond? Or is it to have them learn their spelling words? They said, well, we're going to try and teach them a little something. Sound makes sense on paper. But surveys taken throughout the 2000s and 2010s showed recess times getting whittled down. And the the amount students can get varies from school to school and even sometimes from classroom to classroom. So it makes it very hard to get data on this. This trend helped prompt the American Academy of Pediatrics to issue its new guidelines 10 years ago, arguing that recess is a critical component of the school day. They distinguished recess, which would have adult supervision, but not adult direction from other physical activities like physical education classes. Recess, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, gives children the freedom to problem solve, to navigate emotional problems with their peers and independently learn how to interact in the world. You remember the commentary that I gave maybe about six, seven months ago about the importance of unsupervised sports. This, to me, is the same fundamental concept. And uh, I am all for recess for the same reasons. I don't think it should be taken away as a form of punishment. Other reports show that having unstructured downtime also benefits children in the classroom. It aids them with memory. It aids them in cognition. I'm not surprised by that in the least. I did not get a lot of sleep yesterday for a bunch of different reasons. But 
I did have the opportunity to play a whole bunch of ping pong yesterday. I played um, three or four games with my friend Lou. I played three or four games with my brother Alex. And then I volleyed, just volleyed a lot for both with both of them. And I have to say, given the lack of sleep, and I haven't had any caffeine, but given the lack of sleep that I had going in uh, to work today, I would have assumed that I would have been struggling. I would have been flagging. I would have been uh, struggling to stay awake, uh, racing to the coffee machine to get a cup of coffee. But I'll tell you, in my case, and this is as an adult, I feel great. Not only do I feel like I have plenty of energy, but I feel very focused, and I feel like I am primed to do this show. And I really do think that the break that my mind took from working on X to play ping pong combined with the slight amount of physical activity I got as I was playing ping pong, it really did boost my cognition and memory. And that's for an adult. Can you imagine children whose minds are still malleable and growing? And it's because of data like this that the fact that it shows uh, unstructured downtime benefiting children in the classroom, that the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines specified that recess should not be withheld for punitive or academic reasons. So now after watching recess decline, educators, parents, advocacy groups, they have begun to advocate for a return to recess around the country. But it still hasn't really become a priority in many states. There are a lot of bills in different places around the country. Maine has a bill on this. Um, I think Louisiana has a bill on this. But there's still only 10 states in the country that have mandatory recess for every school child. My question for you is, do you think recess should be mandatory? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. will not surprise you that I am an enthusiastic yes. I think recess is good for children physically. I think it's even more important for them psychologically and in terms of developing people skills, which will serve them for the course of their lifetime. See, until recently, the argument against requiring recess was that schools had too many other priorities. There are already overstretched resources and too little time in the school day. Well, the advocates hope that has finally changed since the COVID pandemic and the lockdown as the social and the emotional needs of students have become more pressing. So I would love to see more states adopt this mandatory recess for every school child. Would you like to see it? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Frank in Queens. Hello there, Frank. The United States is the last place in everything. When it comes to science and everything, we should stop Korea as they, they work people to the bone. Their children are up to like 10 o'clock at night. They push them hard. There's no recess. The country's doing great. They have, they have all these great, uh, you know, technology and then they're leading edge in uh, all sorts of scientific fields. We should uh, push children to work to uh, every seven days a week. There shouldn't be recess. 
Uh, so you say no recess in spite of what the research suggests, that it actually leads to... I don't researchers. I think researchers are all corrupt. They work for... Uh, it, I think all research is flawed. You read all these studies. I, I worked with, just with these people who did these studies, these scientists and all everything, and uh, they're all, a lot of studies are fake. These are fake studies. They, they're, they're fraudulent, and uh, they, they, there's no nothing. That the way they, they, they create them, they're, they're, they create these 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 stories in newspapers are all fake. And uh, I don't trust. I shouldn't trust these studies. They this and that. Statistics are all fake. I look in statistics are fake. Trust me. Do your own research. Don't take my word for it. And uh, I think kids have too much free time playing Xbox. Kids, the uh, kids these days, they have no social skills. I mean, uh, they only know they all they sixty percent males under thirty are single. I mean, uh, they don't have any socials. They just play video games around the computer all day. They should really, uh, you know, um, really uh, to be competitive. Everything's replaced with automation and robots and artificial intelligence. There's going to be no jobs in the future. Well, okay. I mean, you're hitting a lot of different subjects here, Frank. Couple of things. One is, I agree. Uh, children are spending too much time glued to screens. And that's one of the things I'd like to get them a little bit more physical activity. Two, you are right that the South Korean school child, which is eating our lunch in every measurable respect as um, as a country in terms of academic achievement, they are they do have close to a 16 hour school day. That is true. But uh, you're not right that. uh they have no recess. They do have a recess. Again, I don't know if it's mandatory in the whole country, but the, uh, the there is a recess in most South Korean schools. So, um, and you know what? South Korean children do very well academically, but do you know where they finish last? And you might say you don't care as long as they're doing well on writing, as long as they're doing well on English or Korean, whatever they learn there. You might say you don't care, but you know what area they are the worst in? They are ranked at the bottom among 30 of the 30 wealthiest countries in the world. Happiness. Happiness. The children in South Korea finished last when it came to happiness and contentment. Is that a good thing? I don't think so. I would rather have a happy, well-adjusted child that is not ready to go to medical school at 14 years old than a miserable, anxious, overworked child. And I think recess is a big part of that. What do you think? 800-848-9222, Open lines. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Hi, Frank. Frank, recess, this is, of course, in my time. But recess was one of the best places where you could have have a good good fight, you know, between a, a bully. Because I can remember one fight; it was it was epic in Darwin Public School. And this one kid, he was a big bully, and he had a hook for a hand. Okay, he lost his hand. I don't know how, but he was a big mean bully, and he was just torn to a a, a whimpering piece of garbage by Leo, who uh, I was best friends with his younger brother. But Leo was like. Uh, like he was like Muhammad Ali, you know, fighting against this guy with his hook. I mean, it's, he could have ripped your, your 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 right right open if he caught you with that hook. But he 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 just boxed him into a whimpering piece of garbage, and he the bully uh, he never came back to school. But uh, it was one of the best places to, to get get your energy out in, in a nice schoolyard, you know, game or a, a nice fight, you know. So, but we, you can't have that in recess anymore. But 
Those are the good old days, well, in my I, opinion. Well, again, I don't think it's good that uh, children would bully other children, and I still don't think that's good. But I think your point's well taken, Ron, that those fights, and sometimes and I've seen plenty of fights uh, going to New York City public schools in my day. They don't really get bad until you're talking about high school and after school. But I've seen plenty of fights at recess. But you know what I've seen a lot more than fights? I've seen a lot of, um, meaning physical fights, I've seen a lot of verbal altercations among children and what what that does that the fact that you don't have an adult to referee a disagreement between children it does a few very valuable things if you're a child and you say something mean to another child you see that they get upset they might even cry and you see that your words have a consequence not going to make you feel good to make them upset generally if you do that online, if you cyberbully someone, they never see that look on the person that they're bullying's face. They never see how it makes them feel. And they they just they it's basically there it's goes into the ether. They think, oh, I made a funny joke about so and so being fat or skinny or whatever. And I um, I think that's important. And I think it's also important for children to learn how to work out their disputes with one another. 800-848-9222. open lines if you want to comment. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Oh, uh, gosh, Frank. I, I got a compliment and a question for you. Yeah, bullying. I, I saw someone in high school get bullied, and the next day we heard on a loudspeaker that he died. He started the car in the garage and he committed suicide. So, you know, it, it could really hurt. Oh, no but question. I tell you no about, uh, yeah, it was terrible. Uh, yeah. And I got to tell you about your show. I think you probably have the most intelligent um, show on the radio and, and your content is unbelievable. This is like I complimented Rudy Giuliani. And I have no problem giving compliments to good people. I really don't. So, here I go have a, a question about about you, and you're going to think about this. So there's nature and there's nurture. Nature is DNA. Nurture is how you grow up and what happens in your life, like in your own life right now, which you're going to pass on to Carmine. And what got passed on to you from your parents and grandparents was your DNA. But the most important part, which I learned from a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Oz, is that you have tendrils on your DNA, and the tendrils – are what your parents experience in their life, and they're passed on to you. And what do you think your parents passed on to you, whether it was liking to go to Atlantic City, cigars or scotch or broadcasting or you know public speaking? What do you think that your What do you think that your parents passed on to you, Frank? Oh, uh, that is a that's a very a very good question. I'd I'd want to give that a little bit more thought, and I'm going to try and do that uh, over the weekend. Um, a couple of things. One, um, in the case of my mother, uh, my mother is exceptionally uh, generous, and I think uh, I think I am. And uh, my my wife always talks about how the fact that uh, I shop like my mother, and she doesn't mean that as a compliment, but my mother, she if she hosts a uh, a meal for five people, she buys enough food for thirty or forty people, and I and I and I, and I tend to do. The same thing. I'm an over-orderer. I'm an over-purchaser. And it uh, drives my wife uh, my wife uh, crazy. Certainly I've uh, inherited, I think, 
um, you know, some of my mother's physical characteristics. My, um, my my father still doesn't have any gray hair, and my mom was gray um, at uh, I think uh, she was gray at thirty, and I'm much more closer to her in that respect. And I also um, she's on the shorter side, which I am, and my dad is uh, is six foot two. As far as my uh, my dad goes, and, and thanks for the call, Eddie. As far as my dad goes, I think we have a very similar voice. I think, um, and I don't know if that's that's genetic or if that's the fact that I've heard his voice so much over the the years. And you could find him on um, YouTube and other places, and uh, you'll hear his voice, and you can be the judge of if we sound similar. I do. I do think we sound similar. And then um, I think uh, we have a similar sort of dry sense of humor. And uh, we have a lot of the same tastes. We have a lot of the same interests and and likes and and dislikes. And uh, and look, uh, my mother's family, not really heavy drinkers. Uh, My dad's family, much more heavy drinkers. So I would say that's uh, an aspect. Again, I'm not sure if it's genetic or just uh, cultural. But uh, that's one aspect that I think that I've certainly inherited from from him and his side of the family. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Really excited about this. I'm going to be joined by Samuel Chong. Samuel Chong is a Chinese translator. And he discovered a book that he translated, which changed his whole life, and it made this book a bestseller. It's a fascinating story. It deals with cultural exchanges. It deals with linguistics. It deals with aliens. It deals with ancient civilizations. I'm really excited about this interview. I'm thrilled that he's able to uh, to join me on the radio. We're going to get into it in about five minutes, uh, Samuel Chong. Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. Yes, uh, recess is something I always loved, um, and it's substitute teaching in New Jersey. Most of the schools I was in, I know the kids loved it. Um, And one of the things the teacher did was if the kids were out of control, they would say, you know, take recess time away, and um, or if they were bad in the lunchroom. So that was so punitive, and I really felt bad about it. And really what it did was it really just, sort of took the child back like 10, 12 steps, you know, in terms of whatever was sort of stressing them out. You've stressed them. So now not only are they having behavioral issues, but now they're psychologically stressed because you deprived them of something (laughs) that everybody else is doing. So from my perspective, it's the most best thing kids can have. And the oxygen and fresh air that they get, usually when the weather's good, they could go out, is the best for them. Yeah, I completely agree, Tony. So it sounds like you agree with me in that re- more states should be having mandatory recess. Definitely. It, shouldn't, it, it really is kind of punitive that they don't have it because even when you look at business and working all through these recent years, probably more like in the 90s, the ergonomics, the stretching, the moving, the doing things, even in the workplace. Ergonomics is really important. You can't just sit stagnant in any one place. So for mobility reasons, for, you know, getting oxygen, 
there's so many benefits. So when you make a child just sit in one place for hours, that can't be good. Mm, I'm with you completely, uh, Tony. Thank you very much. All right. Samuel Chong uh, joins me next. Very excited uh, to talk with him. And uh, you're going to learn about a book called The Prophecy. And I know some of you have different interests. And, you know, I just got this nice email here that was sent, I think, yesterday. I'm just I'm so far behind in an email, but the nice email from someone named Adam. And I'm not going to read the whole email, but he writes what I like about your show is it's a convoluted mix of everything, (laughs) which that's what I like about this show. I mean, I'd get bored if we were to do four hours of Trump talk or four hours of uh, mob talk or four hours of Star Trek talk or Whatever. You know, you know what I loved on the in the Facebook group the other day and you can join the Facebook group just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Somebody posted, "Oh, uh, 45 minutes of wrestling talk. That was uh painful." Now, first of all, there was not 45 minutes of wrestling talk. There was I think maybe 10 minutes of wrestling talk, and I would argue that obviously I'm not an objective source. But I would argue that the wrestling talk was done in a way that was very understandable for people that weren't wrestling fans. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, it's just it's it's just a, a point that everybody listens to this show for a different reason. And I don't care why you're listening. I just care that you're listening. However, I know some of you, when I do these uh, segments on people that have supposedly contacted ETs or people that are UFO researchers, I know that some of you, uh, it's not your thing. Uh, Fine. You need to listen to this interview anyway, because it deals with literature. It deals with language. It deals with culture. It deals with history. It deals with technology. And it deals with how a translation helped a book become much more widely exposed to the world. And it deals with the fact with the 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 effect that one book can have not just on one man's life, but on the lives of millions of people. Listen to my interview with Samuel Chong straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Take us on a ride Filled 
longing, searching for the truth. We make it till tomorrow, for the sun shine on you. Midnight in the desert, and we're listening. Ooh, we're listening to you. Well, it's after midnight. Uh, almost everywhere uh, that uh, is listening to this program, not quite everywhere, but it's approaching midnight in other places. And when it's this time of the night, it's a time when many of us like to let our mind wander and contemplate the mysteries of the universe. Someone who has not only done a fair amount of contemplation, but has really furthered the understanding that, um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, millions of people around the world have had about ancient mysteries and mysteries of the future has been Samuel Chong. He is a UFO researcher. He is a certified court interpreter and a Chinese translator, and he was instrumental in arranging for the Chinese publication of a book which then became a bestseller. Uh, it is called The Prophecy. We'll get into it in uh, in just a moment. Samuel, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's a great uh, treat to talk to you. Yes, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, tell me about your first exposure to Michael Desmarquais' uh, book, the uh, Theoba prophecy. I hope I'm pronouncing the uh, first part correctly. Uh, who was Michael Desmarquais? How did you come to pick up this book? Yes, uh, Michael Desmarquais is um, a French Australian, and in French, his name is pronounced as Michel Desmarquais. So he was a farmer in Australia who was having a very, very ordinary life. But one day he had a very, very unique and interesting experience in which he was taken by the ETs to their planet for nine days and then came back. Um, I learned about the book back in 2014 when I was purposely searching for books um, of ET contactees, hoping to learn information, the messages um, that the ETs uh, wanted to tell us. Because in my subconscious mind, I was always thinking if um, the ETs could come to visit us, they must have more advanced technologies and civilizations that we can just learn from them to progress at a much faster pace. So we can actually uh, get a shortcut to really learn about uh, their technologies, their ways of living, so that we can have better lives. So back in 2014, I found a book uh, on Amazon. Back then, it was titled Abduction to the Ninth Planet, selling about $200 or $300 a copy of the book. What, you said uh, $200 to $300? Yes, okay. very expensively. So I, was, so I had to borrow it from the library, through the interlibrary loan service. Um, but fortunately, it really paid off because... Um, the book, reading the book has been my best investment in my entire life so far because it reveals so much information and so many mysteries that I've been wondering about. And um, what language was the book initially written in? It was initially written in French and then translated into English 
and uh, helped them uh, help the book to be translated into Chinese. Let me um, let me get you to address the skeptics in our audience. There's a lot of people that claim to have been abducted by ETs or have had contact with ETs. What makes you think that the things in uh, Michel de Marquet's book are um, genuine and that he's not either delusional, delusional or making something up? Well, this book was written in the late 80s. Um, back then, there was no Internet, and Michel de Marquet didn't know how to use computer, and he didn't know how to type. And he never been to um, a lot of uh, other countries like Japan or or, or Israel. And uh, But the book contains a lot of uh, specific, verifiable information that people like him wouldn't just wouldn't have known about. For example, it talks about the tomb of Jesus Christ in Shingo Village, Japan, that no one knew about it until this book came out. And also talks about uh, the uh, antibacterial, antiviral effects of uh, blue light. Um, because when he entered into their spacecraft, um, they dis- disinfected him using blue light. It turns out that certain waves of blue light, according to a research study done by Harvard Medical School, um, they, they have uh, antibacterial, antiviral effects. It also talks about uh, Project Westford uh, back in the 1960s uh, when MIT and the U.S. government um, put uh, like hundreds of millions of uh, needles into space. And the book says that the ETs, the Theobans, were directly involved in um, pulling the needles away from from space so that uh, they won't damage like uh, the the people's lives on Earth. So they purposely made Project Westport a failure. Um, It's really documented by government um, records Mm. that they failed to launch the the millions of needles into space. Tell me how this book uh, impacted your own life. What happened after you read the book? Uh, well, after I read the book, I was so shocked at the content and because it explains the meaning of life, that life is a journey of um, responding to different challenges and a journey to learn more spiritual lessons. I have a very totally, uh, I have a totally different perspective on, on how I should treat others and how I should respond to, to the challenges that I face in my life. And I also took on the the mission to promote the messages in the book because I learned something that the author, Michel de Marquet, didn't put in the book. Uh, that uh, involves a lot of um, the things that might happen in the future. Did you actually go so far as to make the trip to meet Michel de Marquet? Yes, I did. Because uh, in the postscript of the book, it says there are more incredible things that Michel de Marquet was not allowed to write in the book. I was a very curious person. I wanted to find out what more he knew that he wasn't allowed to put in the book. Uh, because the book is really uh, incredible enough and, and revealing so much information that uh, uh, shocked me. And so I wanted to know more. So I went there and and tracked him down. 
All right. Um, you mentioned that this book contains uh, specific verifiable truths. You mentioned blue light. You uh, alluded to the tomb of Jesus Christ. Give me one other example of a specific verifiable information that convinced you of the veracity of uh, what Demarquet was saying. Well, um, there are a few other things that the book mentioned. One is about the human energy field, the auras. As we know, some people can see the colors of auras uh, emitting from a person's body. And this book uh, speaks specifically the... Um, I mean, the the uh, importance of auras. Uh, and there are scientific research studies done by um, um, different researchers on the human energy field. And um, former NASA scientist uh, Barbara Brennan wrote a book, uh, Hands of Light, which uh, documented uh, how she was able to see auras and the purposes and the functions uh, that the auras have um, on the physical bodies. It also talks about uh, the purpose of the Great Pyramid and who built the Great Pyramid of Egypt. It says that the Great Pyramid of Egypt was actually built as an energy center that captures um, cosmic and terrestrial energy so that the users of the pyramid, like the ancient pharaohs, could communicate with people on different planets. And they also used the Great Pyramid of Egypt to make rain that coincides with an um, uh, experiment done by University of Reading in the UK, in which they projected um, what they call the organ energy into space, into, into the clouds, to ionize the clouds so that rain would fall. So, so there are a lot of interesting facts that um, kind of corroborate each other. Now, you alluded to what, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Samuel Chong. Uh, you alluded to the what prompted your initial interest in seeking out books that had the stories of ET contactees. And you were curious about the same thing that I'd be curious about, which is an advanced civilization could clearly teach us a whole bunch of things technologically, maybe in terms of philosophy, maybe in terms of other things. What what did um, Demarquet and by extension you and the public? What have we learned from these uh, these ETs in terms of technology or other areas that we could use to I don't know a more practical effect? I remember there was a Twilight Zone episode where aliens bring to Earth a cure for cancer. For for instance, have we gotten anything along uh, along those lines yet? Yes, there are actually very cheap and effective ways to improve our health in general by using colors. Uh, this is one of the messages that they have brought to us. Um, and the color has the different uh, effects. Different colors have different effects. Uh, for example, um, a lot of research studies show that uh, the color pink would reduce muscle, muscle strength by 30%. So there was a football coach in University of Iowa who painted the locker rooms of the opponents, the uh, the opponent teams, into pink color, so that they would lose their muscle weight by 30 percent. So it turns out that uh, that football coach uh, never lost a single home game because uh, <laughs> he knew the secrets of the colors, the color pink, wow. and also. 
<laughs> yes, this is just one simple example. Um, there are other technologies that the ETs in this book uh, brought us. One is that uh, if you really want to travel into space, you have to consider the space dusts or the small asteroids. You have to apply antimatter guns that would destroy the space dust when you're, when you're traveling at a very, very high speed, like a few times faster than the speed of light. And it is possible to travel um, of, at the speed a few times faster than the speed of light. Um, and also, when you travel uh, at long distances, you should uh, um, like use uh, anti-gravitational technologies and also to form um, electromagnetic field around the spaceship so that you can really uh, turn 90 degrees without uh, having to go through what we experience when we take the plane. Um, and other technologies uh, such as um, like how to build a great pyramid, uh, they they used uh, like a different vibration, a vibration that neutralizes gravity so that the huge stones would become weightless. And and they also used a supersonic vibrational system to cut the huge stones in a very precise manner. Um, and, and they say that we can do that uh, as well if we just find the right frequency and vibration. Um, it also like uh, helps the U.S. government in a way to tell them that the reason they haven't been able to come up with a time machine was because they had been focusing on the wavelength, not on the uh, vibrational frequencies um, uh, when they were researching and developing a time machine. It makes me think about the Philadelphia experiment. And um, they say that um, if they match the frequency and vibrations of the um, what they call the psychosphere, what other people would call the Akashic record, which rotates at seven speed, seven times the speed of light around Earth, they would be able to visit um, like the past to go back in time. And, and there are a lot of things like this uh, contained in the book. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time to talk about all mm. those technologies. <laughs> uh, pro- probably not in this conversation. You alluded um, to the fact that the initial title of the book included a reference to the ninth planet. What is or what was the ninth planet? And did these ETs uh, transport uh, Michel de Marquet to the ninth planet? Well, um, according to the Theobans, there are a total of nine different categories of planets in our universe. Uh, specifically, in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are three category nine planets. And Theuba is one of the three category nine planets. Their role is to guide us. Um, we, we are actually living on category one planet, the lowest category, like elementary school students. Their role is to guide us to uh, live our lives in the right direction, which is to grow spiritual spirituality and to live uh, more like a spiritual life. So they have been involved in our ancient history in the past, and some of their involvement, involvements or interferences were documented and recorded in the ancient scriptures in the Bible. For example, the destruction of the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, was uh, one of their inter- interferences or interventions. 
and also the uh, helping Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, the Exodus was their like involvement, and also sending Jesus and Christ to us to teach us about universal love and spirituality and reincarnation was also one of their involvements. And also preventing Germany being um, the first country to develop the atomic bomb was also their intervention. In a sense, they helped uh, the U.S. government at that time to uh, defeat the Germans and, and the, the Nazis. Uh, and this is um, like uh, their their roles in our uh, galaxy is to guide us and help us in a way, and most likely indirectly, but sometimes and occasionally directly as well. Tell me about the ETs themselves. Uh, I know you've indicated that they were about nine feet tall. What other uh, characteristics did these particular aliens have? Well, they don't age at all. They're forever beautiful and pretty and either in their 30s because they can regenerate their body cells, their organs. So they never age. When Michel de Marquet uh, was on their planet, he just saw all these beautiful uh, women like uh, ETs, um, just like uh, full of compassion and love. And he really didn't want to come back. They can pro- they can perform all the miracles performed by Jesus Christ. For example, they can levitate. They can materialize objects. They can heal uh, all kinds of illness. They can uh, communicate through telepathy. And, and they can do all these kind of things, which uh, Michel de Marquet um, like was uh, really uh, shocked and, and just amazed at their abilities to do so. And um, they are really tall, and they are—they have blonde hair, like Nordic-looking people. Uh, but they're hermaphrodites, meaning that they have hmm. both male and female sexual organs uh, in their bodies. You indicated um, that uh, you mentioned made several references to Jesus and the Bible. I've heard you say that uh, prior to your exposure to this book you really didn't buy much of what was in the Bible. How did your interactions with DeMarquet and reading about his experiences change your perception of what was in the Bible? Yes. um, The Bible, when I read it, I I thought it was a fictional story because um, um, how could uh, someone like Jesus perform all the miracles? It's just impossible. But after reading this book, I learned that Jesus was actually actually Christ. Jesus and Christ are two two different beings. And Christ was the one who could perform all the miracles and died on the cross and resurrected three days after because he came from the planet Theoba. He was an ET and, and to, to, to show us that there is life after death. Um, and there is reincarnation. And this is why he purposely um, resurrected three days after, just to show people at that time that uh, there's life after death. But unfortunately, the Catholic Church Councils removed the concept of reincarnation. It also resolved a lot of my questions regarding the Bible. For example, why Jesus never performed any miracles when he was young, before the age of 30? It turns out that that Jesus was actually born um, from the embryo implanted by the Theobans into the uterus of Virgin Mary. And and this is why the young Jesus um, um, 
couldn't perform miracles because he had to go through, uh, when the astral body goes into the embryo, the astral body has to go through what they call the river of oblivion, forgetting all the knowledge that he learned in the past, and the knowledge to perform miracles. And that Jesus went to India, so that's, that's why some people say that Jesus went to India and died in Japan. So this is why there's a tomb of Jesus Christ in Shingo village, Japan. And that Jesus never performed any miracles. And um, Christ, on the other hand, came um, after and um, at the age of uh, when Jesus was 30 years old. Um, and he really was able to do um, everything as documented in the Bible because he remembered the knowledge to perform miracles. And this is why when Christ began to preach, when he saw his mother, uh, you know, group of people, he didn't call his mother mother. He called his mother woman. Um, I'm a linguist, so I study languages. Not a single language in the world would someone call his mother woman Mm. because it just doesn't happen. Uh, mother and son have a very special relationship. Uh, this explains a lot of the inconsistencies in the Bible. So it convinced me that uh, what uh, the Obama prophecy uh, describes of, of, of what happened in the past uh, mm. has to be true. Hey, uh, I, I, I'm just about out of time, but you have to come back. Oh, what um, If people are interested in learning more about this, either getting your uh, interpretation of, uh, of, of this book or any further, anything further that will further their understanding of this, what's the best place for them to start? Um, they could, would probably want to read the book by um, getting the book on Amazon or search on Google. And by typing the title of the book, Theobar Prophecy, if they want to find my website, they can also type in my name, Samuel Chong, C-H-O-N-G, to find my website. And I, I did a lot of research and, and contains a lot of additional information that's not contained in the book. All right. Uh, Theoba Prophecy on Amazon. Uh, Samuel Chong, uh, enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Thank you. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, if you would like to comment. And uh, we'll take your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. 800-848-9222. We have denunciations uh, coming up next hour. Still to come, uh, the AC report and Brian Kilmeade. A lot to get to. Um, you know, it was an interesting uh, situation. I'm excited. Uh, I've got a th- rare three-day weekend, and uh, tomorrow, I'm able to 
start drinking alcohol again. I'm going to end my Lenten fast of abstaining from alcohol and just about everything else. So uh, so we are going to be heading to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Where else would you go for Easter weekend than to a town called Bethlehem? And it's Saturday we're going to see a show for Rachel's birthday, and uh, Sunday we're going to dinner in Manhattan. So a lot of travel, but all good things. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Happy Pesach, and uh, I believe it's Ramadan as well. I believe the proper thing to say is uh, Ramadan Mubarak. I will double check that uh, to make sure that is the proper greeting. Um, But uh, hopefully you are doing something fun this weekend. Ramadan Kareem, I'm told, is the proper way to wish someone a, a happy Ramadan. Now. Uh, whatever you're doing this weekend, I hope it's fun. I want to give a, a special shout-out to uh, our listeners on uh, Talk Radio 1400, WOND in Atlantic City, our newest affiliate and one of my favorites because Atlantic City is my favorite city other than New York. No offense to all the other cities that we're airing in, but it's the city other than New York that I spend the most time in, and I'm counting down the days till I get to return on April 28th, and we have the AC report coming up in about uh, 20 minutes. Now, uh, there's uh, so much attention paid to what's going on with these whales watching up along the beach, and the bottom line is I have no idea why it's happening, but it I find it incredibly disturbing. Well, they had a big rally this past week opposing the offshore wind development, which a lot of folks believe is responsible for the whales washing up on the beach. And one of the incredibly breathtaking images that I saw as they were doing these press conferences and these rallies on the beach was this stunning, beautiful whale sculpture made of sand. And I was so taken by this I had to find out who made it. It was made apparently by a gentleman named John Gowdy. And he's a master sand sculptor. What he does in sand, it's just works of art, literally. So we're going to talk to him about the whales, about sand sculpting, and a bunch of other things coming up in the first 20 minutes. But uh, since I I uh, am not, uh, since we're doing things a little bit different because of the holiday, Let me do something that I don't generally do at this time in this hour, 
And let me bring you this week's edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I must denounce, and I take no pleasure in doing so, but I must denounce the unhealthiest city in the United States of America. What do you think it is? They ranked 182 cities. And the city that had the overall lowest total score, when you take into account healthcare, food, fitness, green space, and a lot of other areas as compiled by WalletHub, the unhealthiest city in the entire country is Brownsville, Texas. Never thought I would it would be Brownsville, Texas. But sure enough, according to Wallet Hub, that is the unhealthiest city in these United States. Brownsville, Texas, I do denounce you. Brownsville, Brownsville never ran, never will, indeed. Indeed. I must also denounce uh, Daniel Ortega, the dictator of Nicaragua. You know, I was already all set to denounce Daniel Ortega for his treatment of Bishop Rolando Alvarez, who's been sentenced to 26 years in prison by Ortega's dictatorship for nothing. And the Pope, I think, and this is one of the rare instances where I think a Nazi comparison is apt. The Pope says the imprisonment of this Nicaraguan bishop, it reminds him of Hitler's dictatorships. And these are the types of vulgar dictatorships which were prevalent in the uh, in under fascism and under Nazism. A bishop is in prison, a very serious man and a very capable man who is wrongfully imprisoned thanks to this communist dictator Daniel Ortega. Now, that's bad enough. But what he is doing now, now, in spite of this oppressive government, there's still a lot of Catholics in Nicaragua. In spite of that, he's actually making Easter processions illegal in Nicaragua. I mean, think about that. Nearly half of all Nicaraguans are Catholic. And he is making Easter processions illegal? This is crazy. Um, This has got to be one of the most oppressive regimes in the entire country. Ortega is now proposing suspending relations with the Vatican. They've closed Nicaragua's embassy in Rome. And uh, this is... Absurd. He's banning public vigils for the way of the cross and for Easter. This man is a monster. Daniel Ortega, I do denounce you. I must also denounce a young girl, five-year-old girl, who uh, is the... Uh, Lila Nunez is her name, a Massachusetts resident who used her mother's mobile phone to go on 
an Amazon shopping spree and purchased $4,000 worth of stuff, including she purchased herself five pink motorcycles, 10 pairs of cowgirl boots, and a giant two-seat Jeeps. Jeep. I mean, my son presses the buttons on our remote control, and I think he ordered a season the other day on Apple of Better Call the Midwife or whatever that show is called for $12. Do you know how furious I'd be if my son spent $4,000 on Amazon? I mean, this little girl asked to use her mother's mobile phone, and then she intentionally bought all this stuff without her mother's permission. So the mother gives her the phone. Let this be a lesson to all of you parents out there. The mother gives her the phone, figuring she wants to play games on there. And soon she receives a late-night message from Amazon notifying her of extreme spending. This five-year-old girl ran up a $4,000 bill. And uh, this is just ridiculous. And the little girl confessed um, that she had done this. But I think this is terrible. And um, she's using this as a teaching experience for the five-year-old. She is foregoing a punishment for the time being and using this as a learning experience. The transactions for the cowboy boots were canceled just before they left the White House, the uh, warehouse. The bikes and Jeep came out to $3,100. The boots alone were about $600. And um, originally they were un- non-returnable, but she frantically called the co- company's customer service department and they w- did the right thing here. They allowed her to return all this stuff. So there you have it. Uh, Lila, I do denounce you. As Alec Baldwin would say, I don't give a damn that you're five years old. I must denounce the Ford Motor Company, and I hate to do this because I love American vehicles. I love uh, Ford as a company. I love that picture, Ford versus Ferrari. I love the great traditions uh, and the great innovations in the history of the Ford Motor Company. One of my favorite cars that I've ever driven was a uh, Ford Taurus. And it's a wonderful car. And I always kind of would stick up for Ford whenever people would use that acronym, Fix or Repair Daily. I, uh, I, I, it wasn't my experience. I had nothing but good experiences driving a Ford. Well, I'm, I'm telling you. Ford has made an enemy out of the Frankster here because Ford Motor Company is preparing to remove AM radio in most of its new and updated 2024 models. This is not just electric vehicles. They're removing AM radio from gas-powered vehicles. This is insane and outrageous, to quote my friend Rita Cosby. AM radio is an essential communications lifeblood. We need to be talking about how to expand 
the reach of AM radio. We need to be talking how to improve AM radio. We need to be talking about how to save AM radio and celebrate AM radio, not how to kill AM radio. I hope Ford reconsiders this. Uh, If they go forward with removing AM radio from their cars, I will never buy a Ford vehicle again. That is a solemn vow. I hope they reconsider. I hope there is a popular outcry on this because this is this is absurd. AM radio provides such an essential service. And one of the places where AM radio is still thriving is in cars. And if Ford wants to take this next step of removing AM radio, it's going to hurt People that not only like me that are on AM radio, I mean, we're on some FM stations too, but we're on AM radio, but people like me who really enjoy and really treasure AM radio. One of my favorite things to do is just hitting the scan button on my AM radio car and at different times a day and depending on where you're driving, you pick up different radio stations. And to me, that's so exciting. To discover something new. Maybe it's a song you hadn't heard. Maybe it's a talk show host you hadn't heard. Maybe it's um, a, a new radio format that you hadn't heard. Maybe it's a preacher. Maybe it's a sporting event. And to think that people would be robbed of that opportunity, which they would be if they're forced to rely just on whatever they click in on their mobile device and on their satellite radio. This is criminal. Not literally, but it may as well be. And these car companies, including Tesla, were giving the, ra- the, the rationale that they had to do it because of the electric vehicles, because the interference from the electric vehicles screws up the AM signal. Now, I thought that was nonsense, but uh, okay, at least it's an, an, a, a rationale. There's no rationale for this. Pure cruelty. And um, shame on you, Ford. I do denounce you. I must also denounce South Carolina State Controller General Richard Ekstrom, who has made a $3.5 billion accounting error. There are now efforts underway to sack him, and uh, he apparently, by his own admission, as he confessed to senators in South Carolina, He had unintentionally exaggerated the state's cash position by $3.5 billion by overstating the amount the state had sent to colleges and universities for a decade. He said he won't resign. Well, why? You clearly are unable to do your job. Now, we all make mistakes. I make 50 mistakes per show. Um, You're unable to do your job. Your job is to count. That's your whole job. If you can't count... To the um, tune of $3.5 billion, you're going to make that kind of a massive error, which it looks like the taxpayers are going to be on the hook for? What good are you? This guy needs to go. Richard Ekstrom, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Dr. Jan McGee, the now former principal of a school in Florida. She was the head of Burns Science and Technology Charter School in Oak Hill, Florida. This woman claims to be a very intelligent woman. She was convinced that she was talking to the real Elon Musk 
for about four months before she sent this unknown scam artist a check for $100,000 of the school's money. This was the principle. This was the principle. Before you send a hundred grand, don't you think you'd forget about checking? Forget about double checking. Don't you think you'd check a thousand times to make sure the person on the other end of the phone conversation or the email conversation really is the person that he's claiming to be? One of the most recognizable, one of the wealthiest men on earth. And yet, um, she's resigning, which I think is the right move. I wish they would do that in South Carolina for the Controller General. This is the quote, uh, and I feel bad for this woman because she seems like a nice lady. But I think, listen to this quote that I'm about to read you, and I think she really is a victim of her own hubris. She said, and this is a quote, I am a very smart lady, well-educated. I fell for a scam. Now, anybody that needs to announce that they're a smart lady or that they're well-educated, chances are they have much too high an opinion of themselves and their own intellect. I'll tell you, a man that I um, really admired, and he was a close friend of mine, even though that we, we disagreed on so many different issues, but he was uh, a brilliant man and a very nice man, is Dr. Herb London who was not only a Ph.D. and had many postgraduate degrees, not only was the writer or editor of 30 books, not only founded a college at NYU, not only started his own think tank, not only was head of another think tank, the guy had a massive brain. And again, even though we often came to different conclusions, he was brilliant. I don't think in all the years that I knew him, he ever once said, I am a very smart man. Now, he was, but he really just had such a love of learning. And that's, in my experience, what most of the smartest people do. Dr. Jan McGee, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the state of North Dakota. Uh, To be specific, the North Dakota state legislature. Fargo, which many of you may remember from the film and TV show, Fargo has a voting process in municipal elections called approval voting, which is a great system. It's maybe not right for your city, but I use it when we're when I'm at a family function or a small social gathering where we're trying to figure out what movie to watch or what uh, game to play. I find approval voting a remarkably effective tool in coming up with something that at least everyone can tolerate. And we've done whole segments on approval voting on the show. And the point is not whether approval voting is good or whether approval voting is bad. The um, the point is. If the state, if the city of Fargo wants approval voting, they should be able to have approval voting. And yet, the North Dakota Senate overwhelmingly passed a bill that is banning approval voting across the state. Well, excuse me, how about you let the people of Fargo, North Dakota, decide what kind of um, what kind of election system they want, and then. And then if you don't want that in your city, you don't have to use it. 
I mean, if the people of Bismarck or all the other cities named for uh, German cities, Kaiser Wilhelm, North Dakota, and Hitler, North Dakota, if the people of your city don't want approval voting, then pick a system that works better for you. But I hate this trampling of local control. Uh, Some of the best democratic traditions involve local government and giving people the right to choose for themselves how they want to govern themselves. And the fact that, that the state legislature in North Dakota is going to Bigfoot Fargo and say, well, we don't care what you want. We're making the determination for what your city has. Screw you. North Dakota State Legislature, shame on you. I do denounce you. These states and the municipalities within them are supposed to be laboratories of democracy, of experimentation, of showing what works, what could work better, what doesn't work. And it's not for these politicians to supersede the will of the voters in Fargo. North Dakota, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the radio station WFLA in Florida. I believe uh, Lionel actually got his start on that station. It was uh, it's AM nine seventy in Florida, I believe. Well, Jack Harris was the longtime host of this Tampa Bay morning radio show there for News Radio nine seventy WFLA. And after he signed off his show at 7 a.m., iHeartRadio, the owner of this company, the owner of the station, terrible company, by the way. They are the Walmart of radio, and I mean that very disparagingly. After he signed off at 7 a.m., iHeart representatives told him that they were cutting back on expenses and they had to let him go. Now, that happens. It happens in business. It happens all the time in radio. This guy had been on this station for 29 years. They couldn't give him an opportunity to say goodbye to his audience on air. They couldn't have told him right the day before they were going to let him go. We'll give him one last show just to thank people and to say goodbye and to do a farewell show. I know they don't like to do that because they don't want you to curse out management. You know what? That's why there's a seven-second delay. If there's a delay and he says something inappropriate, you bleep it out. Um, I found this to be really classless, but I've come to expect absolutely nothing less from iHeart as a company. I must denounce um, a patient that actually stole uh, an ambulance, if you could believe that. Uh, And it was uh, in my city of New York. This is a a gentleman, 47-year-old man, who was a patient who stole an ambulance that had taken him to a New York City hospital and took it on a 25-mile joyride that ended when state police used a spike strip to stop him. The ambulance he had ridden in was sitting outside the hospital, unlocked, unoccupied, and with the keys in the ignition. When the man left the facility just before 5 o'clock in the morning, the man got in and drove off. 
um, I don't believe we have his name, but whoever he is, nobody should be stealing ambulances. I do denounce you. And finally, I want to denounce Richard Hutter. Richard Hutter is a fraud's fraud. This is a man who made 1.2 million pounds from fake vinyl records. A businessman who made more than a million pounds selling fake vinyl records was finally caught after a fan of the punk band The Clash, who I love and we've played a lot of, complained that the sound quality of an LP he had bought was not as sharp as it should have been. So trading standards officers launched an investigation into Richard Hutter, and they found that he had been selling thousands of counterfeit records to rock and pop fans over the last six years. He was given a suspended jail sentence in order to do 250 hours of unpaid work and told to wear a tag for three months. He charged up to 35 pounds per album for uh, from bands ranging from the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Nirvana, Amy Winehouse. And um, the guy was a total fraud. These weren't genuine records. They were all counterfeit. So Richard Hutter, I do denounce you. All right, we're going to talk all things Atlantic City, all things related to Sam Sculpture, and all things related to whales. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact Everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in all the world. And look, Atlantic City, uh, over the course of its entire history, has had its ups and had its downs. But I don't remember, even when Atlantic City was seeing five casinos close the same year, uh, and with all the jobs and all the tax revenue that comes with that, and all the depression that comes with that, I don't remember being as disturbed by something that has been happening at the Jersey Shore in general and Atlantic City specifically, as I have over the last few months, 
by seeing these dead whales wash up on the beach. Someone who is similarly disturbed is also just somebody that is incredibly talented. Uh, And after another 30-foot humpback washed ashore near Atlantic City in January, he decided to do something to help bring awareness to the issue affecting the Jersey Shore. And so he created an absolutely beautiful 48-foot life-size sculpture of a humpback whale and its offspring made out of sand. Uh, Very pleased to be joined by that uh, sand sculpture artist and um, a gentleman that is uh, really one of the favorite sons of the Jersey Shore, John Gowdy. John, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's great to be here, Frank. Thank you. So, John, give me a, a little bit of your backstory as an artist. How did you get into sand sculpture? Well, that's a good question, but uh, I started with uh, my children. You know, I always painted, and, uh, you know, I was a firefighter at the time in Atlantic City and um, had a family, and, you know, I would take my children to the beach, uh, Albany Avenue, listeners out there that know Atlantic City, uh, a local beach, and uh, just tried to keep them occupied. You know, the water may have been cold, and... uh, you know, they were very young, you know, with the waves. So we started digging holes, basically. That's how I started. So, uh, you know, when you dig a hole, I accidentally got a pile of sand. I mean, it wasn't, you know, on purpose. We, and again, to keep them occupied, we picked up some shells, popsicle sticks, and started carving little sand castles, you know, in those piles of sand. And, uh, and then we, you know, I noticed while we were doing this that, uh, it was like a magnet to the, you know, people on the beach. The people came around us and wanted to join, you know, and uh, it was just amazed me that the performance art of sand sculpting where, you know, it's just a magnet to people and it brought people together. They all wanted to take part. And, you know, we, we formed a little a team called the Rowdy Gowdies, you know, competed in the local contest. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I got pretty good at it through practice and you know went down to uh, fort fort myers florida i got invited down there where they i didn't know there was like a professional circuit of sand sculpting down in fort myers beach uh they had some bad times recently i guess you know uh, they're, they're banged up but uh it was a beautiful you know event in white sand and uh and you know i did well at the professional level and next thing you know, uh, you know, I started going to all these uh, these events basically around the world. And uh, that's how I got started, just digging holes on the Atlantic City beach. So you're digging some holes on the beach, uh, you know, for your for your children. And then you have this big pile of sand and you decide, let me see if I can turn this sand into uh, into a sculpture. Yeah, basically, you know, uh, it was just. You know, the sandcastles in the beginning, you know, then we started doing, you know, like a hand or, you know, we started doing animals, maybe an octopus. And, uh, you know, everyone does it on the beach. I was a lifeguard there for many years, too. And I I noticed, you know, everyone was carving, you know, making these little structures. So, you know, I was never a sculptor 
I was always a painter at that time. I, I did a lot of portraiture. But, uh, but you know, what really impressed me was how, you know, it impressed people. And it, and it you know, it was a magnet, and it still is. I'm at an event right now in Texas, believe it or not. Um, it's called the Texas Sand Fest near Corpus Christi, a little town called Port Aransas. And we're having an event here that attracts, like, a, close to a million people. You know, uh, we have a great, wow. you know, many, many sculptors from around the world competing. People can see your artwork, by the way, at com. That's G-O-W-D-Y-D-G-O-W-D-Y.com. Uh, there is just masterful work on here. I see a photo of you and Pope Francis in the Vatican. <laughs> what is the sand sculpture that you made for the Pope? Well, my wife, I met a girl when I was carving in Italy, and uh, and I married her. And next thing you know, I'm living in Italy after I retired from the fire department. And uh, she is a school teacher, an elementary school teacher. And one of her students said, uh, you know, she was showing pictures of what we do. She helps me, too, once in a while. We're a team now. And, uh, you know, one of her students says, oh, my, my dad, you know, knows the Pope. You know, and uh, could I show him pictures of what you do? And, you know, of course, she thought, you know, it was an imagination. Or, you know, I think it was sure. a sixth grader, seventh grader. So she didn't really believe him. And, she, you know, she gave him a picture. To, he brought it home to her father. And he happened to truly be like the the escort of the Pope, you know, the security guy. So he calls us back and says, if asked us if we would like to to go to the Vatican and, and carve something for him. And, and we talked about design, uh, you know, and we decided upon uh, his hometown church at Buenos Aires. Uh, and we replicated that where he, you know, he got the call to be a priest and, uh, and then went on to become Pope. So he, he really loved it. It was such an honor to meet him. I'm going to speak with him for a while. Oh, I can, I can and, imagine. Uh, I can imagine. It, it and really was. Some of these sculptures are just incredible. Some of them are funny. Some of them are um, are are dramatic. Some of them are historic. Some of them are uh, sentimental. And again, people can go to johngowdy.com. All right. Uh, tell me what prompted you to create this 48-foot live-size sculpture of this whale and uh, why you you named this particular sculpture Hope. Okay, well, again, born and raised in Lang City, lifeguard, sailor. You know, I sailed the ocean. I, you know, I looked at it for many years. I mean, uh, and I never saw a whale live or dead, you know, in Atlantic City. And then uh, one whale washes up. And you think, okay, excuse me, I got a call. <clears throat> I said, okay, maybe, you know, something happened, a boat strike or sure. something. But then another whale washed up within a, two weeks, maybe. And then another whale washed up in, in another town, Brigantine, which is basically just a mile away. We had three whales wash up in a matter of maybe three weeks. And it just hit me like, there's something going on out here that, uh, you know, is is killing these whales. And if you think about it, Frank, you know, when something washes up on the beach, there's probably many more dying out there that aren't washing up. You know, it, it, they float according to the wind. And, you know, it, it 
blows, you know, from the land mostly in the winter time. So there's probably many more, and I think it's up to 12 to 15 now along the New Jersey coast that are washed up. And not only whales, now we have dolphins beaching themselves, mm. you know, just swimming out of the water. We had eight wash up in uh, Sea Isle City, and not wash up, they actually swam out of the water um, from a group of whales that were, you know, just swimming out there. They just turned and swam in. I had an eyewitness that saw, saw it. And, um, so there's definitely something amiss in the in the oceans off of uh, the coast of New Jersey right now. So, uh, do you have a theory as to what's causing these whales to wash up on the beach, Frank? I was afraid you don't ask that, but uh, you know I do, and I, I hate giving my opinion because it's not proven; it's only a theory. And, uh, you know, they're, they are making these wind farms off mm-hmm. of the coast. And uh, they're planned for thousands, you know. I know just off of Atlantic City, the, the, the initial plan is for like uh, 419 of them just off the coast within 10 miles. These things are going to be 1,000 feet high. They're mm-hmm. the highest windmills built in the United States. And, um, Right now, they're testing with sonar to test the bottom of the ocean. You know, it's basically to map out the topography of the ocean floor. And, uh, you know, that's the theory of many people is that this sonar is is just screwing with the uh, brain of these mammals that communicate by sound. You know, we're talking dolphins and whales and other things down there. But, uh you know the and they're they're migrating right now past uh, New Jersey. They're coming up from the south to go to their feeding grounds in Maine and off of uh, Cape Cod. So there's a lot of traffic of whales out there, and uh, and I believe they can't prove it, Frank, because the first thing that goes in a whale, you know, when it decomposes, is the inner ear, and it's just such a delicate part of the body. You know, uh, I think it's, you know, we call them autopsies, but the, in the mammal they call them necropsies. They do that on them, and they, you know, they, you know, they say it's from boat strikes or entanglement, but uh, these whales, you know, when they die, they obviously float. And then I believe they're getting hit by whales, I mean, by the boats. And, uh, you know, they can't prove any difficulty or damage to the inner ear this is what i'm trying to say and it's you know it's just going on and on and uh you know i had the uh, senator palestina he's new jersey uh, senator speak at the event we had and also um congressman uh, jeff andrew and uh they're just calling for a pause in the in this planning of this uh windmill project just to see if it stops the death of the whales and the dolphins. And that's what we're calling for right now. I'd like to see the, the whole plan abolished because it's going to affect not only the, the, you know, the life in the sea, but also, you know, the beautiful, you know, scenery of the coast of New Jersey, where you see the rising sun come over the, you know, the horizon, the rising moon, you know, that will be replaced by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these 1,000 foot windmills spinning on the horizon and uh, you know it just 
will basically be ugly. Okay, there's no other better word. But um, you know, so there's there's problems all around, and there, and they can go on and on, Frank, with uh, the, the generation of the electricity that these things make, and then you know, cabling it to land to you know another place to to you know to supply people for with electricity, and uh, all this you know through the sea and through beach towns, it's just a terrible idea from start to finish. And uh, I could go on and on. As a, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with John Gowdy. Uh, you could check out his website, uh, johngowdy.com. As of now, uh, John, are people able to go to the beach in Ventnor or you know walk over from Atlantic City and see this uh, whale sculpture, Hope? Yeah, it's still on display, yes. Uh I don't know for how long. As I say, I'm out of town right now, so, it, you know, it should still be up. I packed it very tightly, and it should be fine. Well, I, and again, pardon my ignorance uh, on this, but let's say it rains uh, tomorrow. Will that ruin the sand sculpture? Um, probably not. I mean, a hard driving rain will affect it. You know, the main problem with sand sculpture is the sun and wind, believe it or not, that you know, rain keeps it wet. You know, a, a misty day is, is the ideal situation for sand sculpture. But, uh, you know, a driving rain would uh, obviously, you know, pocket pretty good. But, you know, water goes right through sand. It percolates through. So it's a great medium, you know, for sculpture because it allows water to go through it. And it doesn't erode, you know. It just kind of percolates through the sand that's great so people but, uh, can walk over there today and see uh, and see this uh, sand sculpture that's really uh really neat what are you hoping people uh take from this what are you hoping people uh are inspired to do or learn because of your work with uh, with this humpback whale well where i'm at in south jersey there's many uh i guess groups uh defend brigantine beach there's uh protect our coast you know the, the, there's all different people and groups that are you know trying to come to the you know the conclusion of what is causing the deaths of the whale and dolphins and uh so i my main intent was to bring these groups together which uh i i did was i was able to do we all came together on the beach uh, suffolk avenue there in ventnor um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, everyone got together, exchanged, uh, you know, information. And now I basically think they're, they are one group, one voice and, uh, it got air on the Philly news and now, you know, on your radio show and, uh, you know, we're getting the word out that there is a problem, you know, off the East coast of the United States. And, uh, you know, I just hope people would wake up. And, you know, call, you know, people in power and, you know, talk to them to say, hey, you know, let's get this to the federal level and uh, and stop this generation of mm-hmm. electricity. Let's find another solution. Uh, you know, I, you know, I used to be against uh, nuclear energy when I was in college. You know, I, was, I thought solar was the thing, that, you know, the future when we had the embargo back in the 70s. Um, but. You know, I'm thinking nuclear may be the way to go. Now, you know, back then we talked conservation. You know, no one mentions the word conservation anymore, cutting back on electric use. Now everyone's going to 
electric cars, electric everything. And, you know, solar can't, uh, you know, generate enough electricity to power the, the cars of the nation. I mean, that is impossible. So we got to find a, a high output of energy to, you know, if we're going to go to electric vehicles to cut down on the carbon mm. of, in the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, we got to find something. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for any kind of green energy, but don't kill the whales while we're doing it. And don't kill sure. the dolphins and don't screw up our, you know, beautiful tourism here in, in South Jersey. You know, I don't think people will come to the beach to look at windmill spillings spinning out there um, when you could see a moon or sunrise over that ocean. Yeah, well said. Well said, John. Well, I know you've done um, a lot of great work in terms of public service uh, over the course of your life. You mentioned a long time as a lifeguard, a long time with the Atlantic City Fire Department. I I think the uh, public service that you're doing now is uh, really just as important as anything you've ever done. It's a real treat. And uh, I I am hoping uh, to uh, make it to Atlantic City in a couple of weeks, and I'm hoping this uh, sand sculpture is uh, is still up uh, so that I can see it. And I want to urge everybody to check out Hope uh, the the Whale, and uh, I'll certainly encourage folks to check out your website at johngowdy.com. Thanks, John. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me on your show. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure is mine. Uh, good luck in Texas. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can do so at 800-848-9222. Questions, comments, etc. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Do you want to touch? I love Joan Jett. Uh, there are uh, few female rock stars that uh, whose work that I enjoy more than Joan Jett. She is a legend. All right. Uh, so I mentioned last weekend my wife did a look at my credit card spending in the hopes that we can come up with a budget to kind of, you know, pay off the credit card debt that we have and all sorts of things like that. So anyway, uh, we look at this and we realize we have to make some some cuts. And she said to me, you know, we have to really be done ordering, ordering things. We have to really be done ordering pizza or ordering out. I said, okay. Unless it's a... 
you know, it's, it's an occasion where there we absolutely have to. Okay. So, um, in, next weekend, not not this weekend, but next weekend, I am uh, arranging sort of um, an informal ping pong tournament among just friends and you know some other people. And you don't play ping pong, do you, Matt? Play no. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it should be fun. We did this last year as well, and. I am going to, uh, you know, I invited a few people. And so one fellow that I invited, nice guy, my friend Lou, um, veteran public relations person, great guy. He says, uh, I invited him to play. He says, you know, I'd be happy to play. I can come. I can make it. But I haven't been, I haven't played in a while. Would it be possible for me to come practice a little bit before the tournament starts? I said, sure. Why don't you come over and uh, we'll play. My wife finishes work around five, and uh, we can play for you know a couple hours. Well, I could use the practice, and you could kind of get back into the groove of things. Fine. And uh, so that's what he did. Just so happens, so I'm playing with Lou in my basement. We're playing ping pong, and it just so happens my brother Alexander. He messages me the day before and says, now, my brother is a ping pong whiz. He won this tournament last year. He's great. Great player. And he messages me and says, hey, you know, I'm going to be on Staten Island tomorrow. And look, he's wanting we're, we, we, he's wanting to brush up before the tournament again this year, too, to make sure that he, you know, wins again. So he says, essentially, uh, can I come by? We'll play a bit. I said, this is great. We'll have three people to play. So Lou comes by, and uh, he's new. To, you know, this is only the second time visiting the community in which I live in his whole life. Uh, Alexander comes by, and he brings his girlfriend, Molly, who's a delightful person and great person. Now, my wife believes that she might be lactose intolerant. And that's a new development this week. So she's experimenting with refraining from dairy. I am refraining from carbs during Lent while I, you know, use the abstention from alcohol as an opportunity to slim down. And, um, but where clearly it's getting around dinner time. No one is eating. Everyone's hungry. And I'm thinking it would be good for them to be exposed to some pizza because they're all from outside of our community. We have some of the best pizza in the world. So where Rachel and I aren't eating pizza, so I got to order something else for us. So I really want to put my best foot forward in terms of pizza for them, the for the outsiders. So I end up ordering from not one, not two, but getting pizza from three different pizzerias and then at from one of the pizzerias getting salads for Rachel and me. Completely within five days, eviscerating our attempt to avoid ordering out. So I wasn't, I wasn't pleased that uh, I was again spending money so frivolously. But you know what it is when you're hungry, you almost are are almost drunk. You can't think rationally. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, 
everybody. It uh, seems apropos with uh, us playing a song that mentions Jesus because today is Holy Thursday. Tomorrow is Good Friday. And obviously Sunday is Easter Sunday. The granddaddy of them all. The big one. The big kahuna of Christian holidays, at least for non-Orthodox Christians. It is sort of the uh, Easter is to... Christians, what Starcade is to pro wrestling fans. But uh, I like weeks like this when multiple religions all sort of have their uh, their holidays around the same time. It's also, uh, you know, so you have, um, uh, you know, Passover this week, Sunday, Easter. We're in the middle of Ramadan. Congress is even kicking off a two week recess. I think it's a good time for people to try and take some time off, to try and connect with family, try and spend some time with friends, enjoy some good meals, enjoy some good booze, whatever the case may be. And um, initially, I thought it might be interesting uh, to do this segment with Gentiles in mind. What I mean by that? I think a lot of us have heard of Passover. But how many of those of us who are not Jewish actually know what Passover is? Now, I was uh, a little embarrassed to say that uh, even though that I have been to several Passover seders, and I was a little disappointed I wasn't invited to any yesterday, but I I had my hands full, fine. Even though I uh, have been to many Passover seders, if someone asked me, what is Passover really about?, I think I could at best give you a general description about the Jews being enslaved and surviving their enslavement and having a feast to celebrate their freedom and enslavement. So I thought initially that I would give a little bit of history of uh, Passover or Pesach, a major Jewish holiday uh, that usually falls around this time of year. It is one of the most widely celebrated Jewish holidays, and it commemorates the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, as told in the Bible. But what is Passover? Should you wish a Jewish friend or a co-worker a happy Passover? Well, here are the the key facts. Um, It's a celebration of not only the freedom of the Jewish people emerging from slavery in Egypt, which is what I thought it was, and a tradition that results uh, that results that's about remembering and really putting putting people in the shoes of those who were slaves. That's why sometimes I'll go to a seder, and I'll get a speaking part. People figure I can read well. I have a nice voice. Some people think so. And sometimes I'll get a, a speaking part, which I always really like. And you put yourself in the shoes of people that experience the release of from bondage but also reminds Jews of the freedom of all people. And anyone who's experiencing oppression of some sort, whether it's external from other people or even internal, from our own sense of things that oppress us, it's a time for remembering that. So I think it's a great thing for everybody, not just necessarily Jews to celebrate, but everybody. So they commemorate the time when the Jewish people really became a Jewish people. And according to Rabbi Maya Zinkow, who's a senior Jewish educator at uh, UC Berkeley Hillel, it's really the story 
of the birth of our peoplehood. And Jewish people observe Passover um, by gathering for a Seder. Some Jewish families or groups display a Seder plate, the centerpiece of Seders that hold symbolic foods marking the holiday. Seders involve moving through a book, uh, which contains stories, prayers, poetry, other teachings. And then you have the four questions, uh, like uh, how about how this night is different from all other nights. And then you have the um, the foods that are all staples, right? The matzah, which is unleavened bread. I'm quite fond of the gefilte fish. I think the food is delicious at these Passover seders. Um, so that was pretty much going to be my entirety of my Passover conversation. But then, right before the show, I stumbled upon a Facebook message. And you could find me on Facebook at, uh, face, uh, at uh, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. And a guy sent me a message on there. And let me tell you, that is not the best way to get in touch with me. The best, because I don't check it. I find that Facebook often sends messages that I didn't send, or it sends messages from other people that they didn't send, and then they respond to the message that they themselves accidentally sent, thinking that I sent it. And it's it's really just bizarre. I don't like it for messaging. I like it for posting articles and having people comment on articles or, or posting podcast links uh, or, you know, for the great Facebook group that we have where we encourage folks to interact with one another about the subjects that we cover on the show. But I just saw this, and uh, again, if you want to get in touch with me, email, 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 email. I look at every email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. If you can't email, if you are unable or unwilling to email, send me an SMS text message, 8168-MORANO. Okay. And if you can't do either of those, find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. Send me a direct message. My DMs are open. Anybody can message me on Twitter, anybody. Then Facebook is, I think, the worst. Okay. Um, So I don't always check it. So I happen to see this right before the show. And I'm sorry I was so late getting back to this guy because he wrote to me yesterday morning. I was sound asleep when he wrote to me this. The fellow's name that wrote this to me is named Philip. And this is what he wrote me. I'm old, Frank. And I don't know if this is the right platform to send this message on. I have a problem, and I need some advice. And I think you are a caring enough person to consider this. My son has canceled me, and I am not invited to the Seder tonight. Because of the Jewish tradition of not turning away someone from a Seder, I am wondering whether I should just show up. He has turned orthodox. And I want to see if he is a hypocrite or not. Thank you for all you do for our community. I'm not sure if Philip is talking about the radio community. I'm not sure if he's talking about the New York community. I don't know if he's from New York. I'm not sure if he's talking about the Jewish community. But either way, you're welcome, Philip, because I like to think I serve every community, whether I'm a part of it or not. I do a a great deal for um, the Jews, for instance, just by not being one. Am I right? So anyway, um, 
I was really sad at this message. One, I hate when families, especially fathers and sons, have any sort of acrimony. And uh, my philosophy with really any blood relative, and even in-laws, honestly, is, all right, you do something bad to me, all right, you got the better of me. I'm the sucker. Maybe I won't lend you money again. Maybe I won't co-sign your loan again. Maybe I won't, um, you know, uh, go out of my way to to do something for you if that's what resulted in me getting screwed or having a hard feeling to you. But uh, my view is any any anything, it's really not worth getting into a fight about. Um, if it's money, okay, so be it. That which so often it tends to be. When a parent passes away, let's say, and then you have siblings fight over money, that's always the case. My view is, okay, um, sure, the right thing to do would be to share things uh, right down the line. No, okay, uh, I'm not. You don't want to do that? Fine, okay. I have a friend, for instance, who has two brothers, and he was living in a condo that a relative had left the three of them. And they all had houses, and this was basically all the guy had. And he owned a piece of it, and the brothers each owned a third of it. And um, essentially the brothers decided to sell it. They voted, and two to two to one, the one being the guy that was living there, to sell it. And my friend said, he's an older guy, he's probably close to 70. My friend said, uh, well, I mean, don't, how about... Rather than us selling it and all of us getting a third, I'll specify in my will that my portion of the property goes to either you guys or your children. And you guys can split the whole thing. And they wouldn't go along for that. And essentially, they sold this from out from under him. And he's so upset with his brothers about this that they uh, they don't speak anymore. They've been brothers their whole lives. They don't speak anymore. And I thought that was just so sad. If any one of my brothers did something like that to me, uh, I would be upset about it. But no, I would move on. I would absolutely move on. And that's one of the things that I really admire my wife about because she's got eight siblings. And, you know, when you have eight siblings, chances are one or all of them at various times will do something to really tick you off. But it would never occur to her to not speak to one of her siblings and look, they've done some things that are that are that are tough um, to her, and she always forgives, and she recognizes that you know we're family. You gotta you gotta put that behind you, and um, that's what made me so sad for starters. So I wasn't sure how to answer Philip. He writes me, his son canceled him, and he's not invited to the seder. But because of the Jewish tradition of not turning away someone from a Seder, he was wondering whether or not he should just show up. Now, I guess this was last night. So I, I guess I'm a little late getting back to him. But I'm curious what advice you would give this guy. The son has turned orthodox and the father wants to see if he's a hypocrite or not. What, do you, what would you tell him? Do you tell him to just show up? Do you tell him to not show up? What do you tell him? Because I, I really honestly don't know. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Now, my sister-in-law is an Orthodox Jew. Married to an Orthodox Jew. So um, I reached out to her. I copied and pasted this whole message. I said, uh, what would you tell this person? 
This was her response. Hmm. I would say no, don't show up because of drama, but that's very sad. Can he ask again if he can come to the Seder? Okay. Um, That's, I think, very sound advice on both ends. If you ask again to come to the Seder. Now, I don't know what this father did to make his son so angry at him that he's disinvited. But, um, you know, at least by asking again, you show, uh, you know, the son that you're interested in being a part of the holiday and participating in his life. But and by not, by just showing up, it does inject an element of drama. But I'm not Jewish. I'm certainly not Orthodox. And I know we have a lot of listeners that are not just around Passover, but all the time. So what would you do if this person asked for your advice? 800-848-9222. And I know many uh, Jewish households, and I'm not sure if this is particularly true of Orthodox Jewish households, but I suspect it might be. I know many Jewish households, the Seder is not a one-night thing. They do multiple nights of Seder very often. Um, I've certainly seen that. What would you tell this guy? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When he says, you know what, the aspect of this message that I didn't like, and again, I've read it so many times. The aspect of this that I really didn't like is when the guy says to me, He's turned orthodox, and I want to see if he's a hypocrite or not. I don't feel like you should be testing people for hypocrisy. I don't feel like you should be saying, ha, we got you. You didn't let me into your house, so you're a hypocrite. Let's say say your theory is right and that he is a hypocrite. What do you then do? I mean, so what? You know, I don't think it repairs your relationship at all by you knowing that your son is a hypocrite. I don't know. What would you do? What would you tell him? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Robert in Long Beach, what advice would you give this gentleman? Uh, thanks for taking my call. Awesome show. You help keep us awake all overnight. Th- thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, he should go. But before the father goes, he should write a letter. Wait, 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 wait. Just, wait. just I want to be clear in the first part of what you said. When you say he should go or shouldn't go, he should go to the theta. Okay, but he should write a letter beforehand and see if the son responds. Okay, so say maybe send him an email. Okay, uh, email. I'm sorry. Well, because, yeah, email, no, letter. because the letter just wouldn't arrive. Probably. Man, I guess he right. could drop it off there. You're right. Right. And yeah. see if the son responds to that letter before just showing up. I mean, the son being orthodox, I think a letter would make it more uh, intimate, family, uh, more personal than a cold email. <laughs> You know, well, yeah, okay. I, I like that. I like that. Okay. A, a hand, a handwritten letter. All right, handwritten letter, and then whether there's a response or not, you just show up. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, all right, Robert. I think that's. I think that's interesting advice. Although you still have what my sister-in-law mentioned in terms of the the drama, right? I mean, I'll be honest. Again, I don't think I have any relatives that don't talk to me, but. Um, if I had a relative that I knew didn't want to see me, 
I don't know that I'd want to show up at their house uninvited and essentially be a Seder crasher. I understand the tradition of not being able to turn people away, but I don't know. I mean, it strikes me as as asking for trouble still, even with that letter. I would say maybe I'll amend this from Robert's response, and I'll write to Philip and suggest this. I would say write him a letter reiterating that you'd like to go and see if he responds. And then if he doesn't respond or he says he doesn't want you to go, I think you should respect his wishes. That's kind of where I come down. Kind of where I come down. 800 Do you have an opinion on this, Matt Blaze? Now, I know you're Jewish but secular. Yeah. Do, you, do you celebrate Passover? Not anymore. When I was a kid, we did. Every year, we went to my aunt's in Bell Harbor. Every year. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about this the other day on the, on, our, on the darker side of midnight when we talked about the traditional foods for Easter and Passover. Uh-huh. And I said that when I was seven or eight, my grandfather said to me, if you say the four questions at the at the Seder in Hebrew, I will give you $500. And I was seven. And my father taught me the five, the four questions, and I did it. And he, did he pay you? And he paid me $500. Oh, wow. It started my, my bank account as oh, a kid. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. So, yeah, my dad taught me the four questions. And Although, I guess the, the Passover traditions that were instilled in you have not resonated <laughs> to this day. No. No, okay. it got to the point where, look, Passover, like you said, it's reading of the entire story. And as a kid, it's yeah, boring. It can be a little lengthy. Oh, it's lengthy. But what about you get to boring. find the matzah? That's exciting. Yeah, that was always the fun part of finding the matzah. Um, but as I grew older and, like, my grandparents, you know, died off and then, like, traditions kind of went out the window to probably the last time I was at a Seder was maybe 10 years ago. My mom, before she moved to Florida, and our Passover, I swear, consisted of happy Passover. Let's eat. Mm. That was it. No, mm. we tried to sort of do it, but it just didn't. Those traditions were with that older generation. All right. So what do you tell household. this guy, anyway, Philip? It doesn't sound like he really wants to repair the relationship. Right. It sounds like he just wants to see if his son's a hypocrite, which, is, which begs the question, well, what did he do to banish his father in the first place? What did Meaning he do? His son. His son. Like what? Uh-huh. Is, what? Well, he said the son canceled him. Canceled That's the word him. That he used. But what did he do for his son to cancel him? And he just goes, "Well, he's the orthodox now, so I want to see if he's a hypocrite. Not like I really miss him. Right. I want to repair right. the that, relationship. That was my impression as well. I really want to be with the family for Passover. He didn't say any of that. He says, "I want to see if he's a hypocrite." Yeah, yeah. So, what do you tell this guy? Um, I would say work on repairing your relationship. Because at first, when you first said it, I would thought, you know, just show up. He's a fa- it's family. But then I thought, this guy doesn't really sound like he even wants to mm. be around the family. Mm. Or it's about family for him. It's about finding out if his son is really an Orthodox Jew or is he now a hypocrite by turning me away after he canceled me for the unknown reason that we don't know. Yeah, Because he didn't true. go into that. That's true. Um, that's true. You know what? Usually, what I have seen many times is... Uh, and it's just always so sad when, you know, somebody else wrote to me that their their daughter, this is not nothing to do with this conversation, but their daughter is um, no longer, I, I forget the phrase that he used, but it, it said something like, um, my daughter is no longer with us or something. And he showed me this great picture of him and his daughter, 
And I thought, oh, no, I mean, that's terrible. Because he, he was writing to me about Saudi Arabia. And then I'm like, goodness, your daughter died? It's a young woman? It's terrible. And um, it, it turns out, no, she's still alive, but she doesn't talk to him anymore. But he's describing her like she's dead. And apparently, according to this fellow, yeah, so this is what this, this, this is what this fellow says to me. Uh, it's a photo of him and a little girl from 30 years ago. And he says, that's my lovely, brilliant, long lost daughter, Amanda, say 1993. Um, and then he mentions full free ride to XYZ University. I said, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, when he says lost, I assume that means she's gone. Turns out, no, I meant lost because my ex turned her against me. I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> I, I I haven't seen her talk to her in 15 years. Now, that's sad, too, but it's not like what I thought it was. So what does happen with a lot of divorced couples, a lot of times the parent who gets custody kind of tries to turn the other parent against uh, against the 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 other parent that they're feuding with. And I'm very grateful, honestly, both of my parents, that they never tried to do that with me. But um, that happens. And then I think the other thing, the other reason parents and children may not speak is either if there's a, a abuse, some sort of physical or emotional abuse going on, or uh, fights over money, which is, I think, the silliest and the saddest way uh, that uh, that these relationships deteriorate. So what would you tell this guy? 800-848-9222. John is in Connecticut. Hello, John. Hey, good morning, Frank. Yeah, I think, you know, it's so interesting to me because there there are things that happen between family members that are irreparable, irreconcilable. And I have personal experience with that. My brother and sister walked off with my parents' money, uh, leaving my sister, my other sister and I. Uh, with not with nothing at all. I don't speak to them. They don't speak to me. They got the money. They ran, and that's it. So I think this guy, unfortunately, uh, he should not go because he's not welcome. And I think that it'll make a bad situation worse. He should not go. Uh, should he do anything else in the meantime? What about the other gentleman's suggestion of a uh, a letter of some sort? No, no. I, see, he's. I don't. It puts him in a sort of a down position if he writes a letter. He doesn't. He shouldn't have to. The son should reach out to him. It shouldn't be the other way around. And it's the son who started the issue, and the son should uh, initiate the reconciliation. So I think you know to be writing a letter that's actually kind of pathetic in a way. Uh, I, I uh, don't. You know. I don't agree with that. I, I I do agree with you that he should probably not go. I, I don't agree that it's pathetic. Uh, thank you, John. Look, if um, if God forbid my son uh, one day were to choose to stop talking to me, I would try really for the rest of my life uh, to repair that relationship somehow. Maybe that's letters. Maybe that's phone calls. Maybe it's just showing up. And, um, you know, so I don't think I don't think it's pathetic at at, at, uh, at all. I, I think it's important to keep trying if you've somehow um, damaged the relationship with um, with a a child of yours, Russ is in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Hey, uh, Frank. I think this email is trying to make a religious point because I, I read about Elijah, and it seems like Elijah is a zealot 
who nobody wants around. So this father's making the point of, is he a hypocrite or not? His son, he's acting like he's Elijah. And, of course, Elijah is Yahweh, who, who we don't want around. So I don't know. I, I I think Passover is all about drama. And I'm, I'm telling you, my 38-year-old son, he's not talking to me about a lot of things, and it's all political. So... Well, that's absurd. How do you let politics damage a familial relationship like that? Um, I don't call him over and over again. And I, you know, well, why can't you? Him. Why can't you talk about things other than politics? That's a good point. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I should try doing that. Russ, um, first of all, remind me uh, because you, 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 the points that you make. A lot of times, I can't tell if they're left wing or right wing, and, no. and there's a lot of people like that. Are you? Do you consider yourself far right wing or far left wing? I'm an NCL, non-communist left, non-cosplay left. I'm not trying to play a leftist. I've been a leftist all my life. But Frank, can I ask you something about? Something going on you brought up earlier in the week, real quick, about the garage worker who was shot in the confrontation on 31st Street. Yeah, very quickly, though, yeah. Real quick, I I used to go around to all those garages. That's a high-security garage. I want to know, have you seen video? Are you just taking their word for it? Because I think that garage worker confronted the guy outside. A lot of things just don't add up. So if you can tell me if there's Uh, a video. No, I, I have not seen video. I don't know whether there is or is not. Uh, but I would assume, and look, I used to park there. Uh, I would assume that there is some sort of video there. By the way, you know, there's a wonderful song. Um, and, and again, I'm sorry to do this. I'm sure they're going to make fun of me uh, on uh, the post-show uh, podcast that these guys do, The Darker Side of Midnight. But there's a wonderful song um, from the William Shatner album, Common People. The song is called That's Me Trying. And it's all about a father trying to reach out to his daughter after years of estrangement. And it's Shatner essentially reading, because that's what he really does, spoken word. And then it features Ben Folds and Amy Mann musically. And it's a wonderful song. And it really, in just a couple of minutes, does a great job um, capturing the difficulty of these relationships and the lengths that some people will go to repair them. 800-848-9222. What would you tell this guy? Can I just jump in real quick? Yeah. What Russ said was totally wrong about Elijah. You want Elijah to come to the Passover Seder. Well, I, That's I why think there's, there's an empty cup a... and an empty chair for Elijah. The Passover part is the angel of death. You want to pass over No, I thought he house. said you want Yahweh not to show up. No, I he think... said I thought he said Elijah. No, I think he said you want Yahweh not to show up. Um, I heard, I heard Elijah. Okay, so well, it could be, it could be, but um, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily trusting Russell's relation of Jewish scripture, and uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't agree with uh, with that. I mean, look, whatever. It was not much in the way of analysis. He clearly wanted to talk about something else. Anyway, Sarah is in Wisconsin. Uh, Sarah, how did you uh, feel about the election in Wisconsin this week? Oh, please. <laughs> don't, don't make me go there, please. <laughs> oh my God. Um, well, let's put it this way: uh, I, I, I voted for Dan Kelly, <laughs> who was the loser. So, too much politics. Too much politics this week. But that was kind of the final blow. For, mm, I can imagine for those of us that were not voting for the progressive in any way, shape, or form. So, I don't know. It embarrasses me. 
because Wisconsin's always sort of led the way with fighting Bob LaFollette, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And Joseph anyway. McCarthy, don't forget. Yeah, well, yes. Well, okay, okay. We've lived, had to live that <laughs> down. But, <laughs> but I just want to tell you quickly, because I know you don't have a lot of time. Um, I wrote you an email about the Boston Legal um, and so it goes, the song. Do you remember that? Yes, said, yes. What, what, okay. And, and I said to you, hug your child. Hug that, that boy every day because I lost mine, my son, five years ago. Okay. And, and that's how I ended the email. Because, and and you, you responded to me, in, you know, quickly, which was fine. And then you doubled back and you wrote me a second one and said, I didn't read it closely enough. I am so sorry that you lost your son. Which was so kind of you. I mean, it just, of course, made me love you even more. But that's what happened. My son got married. His wife didn't like me, never liked me, don't know why. My son and I were close, thick as thieves, our entire lives. I mean, really. And so I literally have not seen or heard from my child in five ah, years. Well, so one, one, I'm glad that he's still alive. Uh, that, uh, you know, I'm pleased to hear that. But um, I'm, I'm so sorry about that. You know, and I have a close friend, and um, I was friends with her son as well. And uh, I think it's a si- similar situation. Obviously, I don't know the details of their relationship or the details of uh, you and, and your son's relationship. But my, uh, this, my, my friend's son totally cut her off. And I don't know, and they have two children, and uh, she has one grandchild that she's never even met, and uh, I just feel so uh, terrible for uh, my friend because she's very lonely and would love a relationship with her grandchildren. I think that, um, I think that, uh, I think that's, I, I can't understand how people can allow someone, even a husband and a wife, or a husband or a wife to so ruin their relationship with a parent. That's Frank, terrible. Frank, yeah. I have three grandchildren. I've only seen one. Ah, okay. I hate to hear that. That's terrible. But, I, what, but my point being, I tried everything, everything, everything short of going to directly to their home. They only live three hours from me, okay? And I quizzed my friends about it, and I decided... I didn't want to create the drama for my my boy, okay? Because just showing up at the door after you've been literally shut out of someone's life. I mean, there's there yeah. There's, yeah. All so right. I'm, uh, I'm 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 with the drama. I'm with your sister on that. Um, well, sister-in-law. Uh, I, I don't yet have any Orthodox Jewish uh, full siblings, just in-laws. Thank you, Sarah. Good luck with everything. Have a good weekend. Happy Easter and all the rest. Brian Kilmeade joining us in a moment. But first, let's give away $1,000 to someone that can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Why is today different from all other days? Hopefully, because today is the day you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. 222 $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Don't You Want Me from the Human League. You know, I like the Human League, but it has not been the same since they have gone with the uh, universal designated hitter rule, in my opinion. All right, without further ado, let's see if we can't give away some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say Ray and Mineola. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, Frank. Ray, yeah. ha- have you heard this contest before? I have. I played once, I think, in November. Okay. And Universal designated hit rules the least of it. The ship change, all this other stuff. Man, it's a different game now. Yeah, anyway. that, it certainly is different. We'll, uh, we'll we'll hold off on that discussion. Um, you know the you know the rules. You ready to go? I'm ready to Let's go. Let's do it. How many sides does a rectangle have? Four. What does NYPD stand for? Again. What and, does and NYPD stand for? Oh, NYPD, uh, New York Police Department. What Illinois city had its election for mayor this week? Chicago. What Virginia-born president saw both of his vice presidents die in office? Oh, man. Uh, that's a tough one. I know you're into this. Same as question four yesterday and the day before that. Same answer. Uh, William Harry, Henry Harrison. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it's James Madison. James Madison Uh, had two vice presidents that he that he um, outlived. Uh, Both of them died in office. George Clinton and Elbridge Jerry, who gave us the term gerrymandering, albeit unintentionally. Ray, hang on. Kenneth is going to give you uh, a consolation prize for people that play this game. Monday, the answer to question four is James Madison. James Madison. We're going to keep, we're sticking with Madison for the time being. Somebody that would know that because he's a history buff and uh, doesn't like the, uh, a lot of the craziness that was going on at the James Madison Presidential Library, although some of that has been dialed back, is Brian Kilmeade, co-anchor of Fox and Friends, nationally syndicated host of the Brian Kilmeade Show, host on the weekend of One Nation and a New York Times bestselling author many times over. Hello there, Brian. Good morning. What's going on, Frank? How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing great. Uh, let me first. I want to pick your brain on a few things, but obviously the news that everyone's talking about this week is this Alvin Bragg indictment of Donald Trump. I've seen your analysis and your interviews with people like Jonathan Turley and others, and it doesn't look like there's necessarily a lot of legal meat on this. But talk to me about the politics of this. It seems like, at least in the short term, this is benefiting former President Trump. Assuming he wins the nomination, do you think this is going to benefit him in the general? You know, there's a long way to go. I mean, we have really three more big cases. And at least, I don't care where you stand, Trump's got a point of view in Georgia. 
He's got a point of view, a strong point of view in Mar-a-Lago compared to Biden. What the hell are you doing raiding my place? I was already in negotiations. I gave you 17 boxes back. I was going to give you more. They'll come back and say, you are hiding it. We have video. He's going to say, no. I'm... So bottom line is, uh, Frank, you and I have better shows. There's a legitimate debate. And then in Georgia, did you actually uh, tell someone to go find 1,100 votes? He goes, no, I wanted to find votes because I believe they were still out there. I wasn't telling you to go make them up. So... They're judging by the, should they bring that indictment for us? But it's, that could be two. And then three on January 6th, if the president plot and plan to storm the Capitol. I don't think he did, but people are going to say, oh, he acted irresponsible, didn't call fast enough. More debate. More debate on our shows together, TV, everything. So that takes up all the room. We're not talking about Nikki Haley at the border. Right. We're not talking about Governor DeSantis uh, taking on uh, transgender rights of a third graders. We're not talking about anything else. And and even Joe Biden is not in the news, which is great news for him because he's done a terrible job and he's clearly not up to it. They don't even know how to bring somebody to the White House, correct, as you saw with women's basketball. I mean, how do they screw that up? So all that stuff gets plowed over because Trump's in turmoil. So that helps him get the nomination. Now, in the general, how many people say, "Okay, that's perfect. That's what we need? Because if you think about it, Trump did take stuff from the White House, causing all his enemies to tee off. Trump did make a call to Georgia, uh, misinterpreted as it may have been, taped by Republicans, put uh, by a Republican secretary of state, put out there. So that's not a unifying message. And then when he comes out and says, defund the FBI and Department of Justice, do you really want to take away mm. the defund the police from Democrats? They earned that label. They live it. They just directed a defund the police mayor in Chicago. Let them own it. Don't tell. Don't say defund the FBI. Reform. OK. Defund. Don't you know, don't take that away. Well, yeah, especially when uh, the FBI has played uh, such a, a pivotal role in so many investigations in things like terrorism and uh, mass yeah. shootings and that kind of thing. I, I, I don't imagine that would go over well with uh, any undecided voters that uh, that are still that are still out there. But um, we'll, we will see where it goes. It'll be interesting. Very much uh, enjoyed your uh, your photos with uh, Cardinal Dolan. I know you got to interview him for. Uh, Easter week. How did uh, how did that go? What was your experience like with Cardinal Dolan this week? It was kind of fun. We went to his residence. We uh, knocked on his door. He came out and I wanted to do it at Christmas. He said, what if we postpone to Easter? And as usual, he's a man of his word. Sure enough, we called. He said, let's do it. So we, we literally in a packed, beautiful day on Monday, we took a, a walk around the block of uh, which is St. Patrick's while interacting with all the tourists and all the Catholics and talked about real issues. I mean, basically, the, the pro-life message is something the Catholic Church wanted, most conservatives want, but it's cost them elections. So I asked him flat out, if the Republicans stop winning elections, but they win the Roe v. Wade argument, uh, is it going to be worth it? And he had a very good answer. I think you're going to be uh, going to enjoy mm. that. Uh, and, I, and just the whole message about less people coming to church since the pandemic, a lot of people haven't come back. Is watching online okay? Uh, he goes, let's do both. So, and then his great personality, you know, he, he doesn't have a bad day, uh, recounting the three popes that came to visit one with him, the last one, uh, what it was like and what they were, what his reaction was seeing St. Patrick's for the first time now as a Pope, 
Um, and I, I actually will vote for him for Pope if they give you, Frank, if, if you and I have a vote, we should really vote for him. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But if there is another Pope, and this guy's not into it, let's be honest, he wants out. So we got to get Dolan in there. Well, I mean, you know, again, I don't know if I'll be even able to become a cardinal in time to qualify for voting in this election. But uh, there's a reason it's a secret ballot. John Castamatidis wants to make it happen. He could make it happen. (laughs) He knows that type of people, Frank. And I do. I know Sid wants to be a cardinal, but he wouldn't qualify. Um, But that's why I think you'll get it. Sid wants any job that anybody else has. Oh, you're in movies? I want that job. You're on TV? I want that job. You're on uh, radio? Oh, I want that job, too. Uh, fitness model, author? Oh, I'll do that. I'll do that. Uh, Sid wants any job that anybody has, um, including Cardinal. But right he gets about it. That. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. He's doing great. Um, hey, uh, so what are you doing for Easter? I know your work. Sunday is, I think, one of the few days that you're not actually on the air. What, do you, what, what goes on in the Kilmeade household for Easter? Well, this you know we we had to you know three in college, so we got uh, one coming home, um, and other family members coming over. We're going to have an Easter lunch, so we're, we're calling an audible, so to speak. Okay. And then, as you know, Sundays are our busiest days. I don't know for you, but getting through all the Sunday shows, oh, even yeah. on Easter, uh, and getting ready for the week and seeing what guests that, that might emerge, and so it's a busy work day for me. But I don't consider this work. But so I do a lot of stuff. But I mean, no um, major news uh, coming out. I'm just getting ready. Uh, book coming out in the fall. Going to do a TV special along with it, and and just keeping up with with uh, this Trump mania. I'm going to be doing Kevin McCarthy in a couple of weeks in Washington. Going to spend a day with him to mark his 100 plus days, like about 105 days. So I'm getting ready for that feature, and just making my way through. Well, the um, the situation involving the new rules in in baseball. I know you follow sports closely than anybody. Uh, so, look, I thought it was silly the other day to have, on the one hand, a player get a uh, not a called strike three, not a swinging strike three, but a waiting strike three. It ended the at bat at a pretty pivotal moment in the game. But I must say, I do like that the games are a little shorter. How are you uh, liking these baseball rules so far? I do. I, I like him. And here's the thing. For such titanic changes, you don't hear a lot of complaints. Yeah. And I do say this. They And I, and I, I was just listening to uh, a podcast on this. They really did their homework. They tried these things in the minor leagues. They briefed every single locker room last year and in the summer. They told them exactly what they wanted to do and their main concern for it. And then having John Smoltz on the other day uh, and talking to other players. The players go, yeah, we kind of want to get off the field a half hour earlier. I never thought about that. Mm. You know, I'm thinking to myself, the fans, the players want to get off their feet. Right. And they don't love the million, you know, the the three minutes between pitches. And sometimes I think tactically, I don't know if it's even happened yet. I think some pitchers are going to be a little rattled and they're going to go, you know, I'm going to take a ball. I got to think this throw. And then I love the tosses to first base. It's going to be a limited amount of tosses. How many times you just sit there and watch a guy stand at first base? They still toss it over. Well, now, you know, if you use your tosses, that guy's guaranteed to go. Because you got no more tosses to keep them on. So I, I think it could be good, and I'm surprised because they say that Robert Manfred, the commissioner, not a baseball guy. Right. You know, he's not. Which he's is not exactly what you want in a commissioner, right? Yeah, so he's like, listen, right. I'm, you know, I like the game. I love the game. I know Cooperstown's important, uh, but we're losing every young person. 
It, so I like it. Yeah, I, uh, look, I expected it to be much worse <laughs> so far. So uh, that is, uh, it's it's certainly a nice thing hey, to Don't you uh, like the see. stealing bases again? I, I do, yeah. I mean, I don't know why they had to make the bases larger. I, I And I, my concern, though, is while it's exciting to see more people stealing bases, I think it does distort the records of people like Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, Maury Wills, etc. So, could be, yeah. You know, uh, but, uh, but, you know, it's uh, neither here I nor there. I think it could be a safety thing, too, because, you know, you want these guys to get close to the base uh, when they're making that, when they're making that, they're turning around and trying to turn a double play. And I think if you have a bigger base, you can actually give them there without losing a knee or be flipping on their heads. So I think that that's kind of interesting. You know, I just think they said that the home run is almost ruining the game. Because, I mean, look at Stanton last year. That's right. 211 with 76 RBIs, a ton of homers. Um, and people get the sense, if I don't hit homers, I don't put people in the seats, and we're going to play for the long ball. And now, no one was running. So they had to, without taking, you know, stopping the home run, they said, okay, how do we get people to play baseball again? Yeah, and um, I am hoping that they're successful in attracting uh, more more younger fans. It's uh, I'm rooting for rooting for them more so than uh, than anybody. Give me your quick take on the uh, Chicago mayor's race. Uh, any chance that uh, Mr. Johnson, the new mayor in Chicago, ends up being a pleasant surprise? No, this was going to happen, and I was on the five last night, and this is essentially it. You have to hear some of the statements this guy makes. Uh, this guy basically wants a social worker going to domestic disputes. Uh, th- by the way, if I'm a social worker, I don't really want to go in the middle of a of a gunfight. So they want him with they want a social worker with all these cops. If they wanted to be cops, it would have been. I imagine some social workers go, "Excuse me, no, thank you. I'm going to fill out a report and go visit a family. I'm not going to go into a firefight, thanks." But if they do go, you want to play a role? Okay, fine. You can. You want to make Mr. and Mrs. Johnson put down the guns and the and the butcher's knife? Good luck with that. Number two, this guy will find out the whole defund the police, the police are the problem. If he will see crime rocket like he's never seen before, and if he's not mature enough to understand his ideas don't work in practicality, uh, Chicago will have no people left. I don't understand the people of Chicago. I don't understand why they want more chaos and crime in their lives because that's what they voted in. I mean, they're both Democrats, but one guy was somewhat reasonable, and he sold out to the teachers' unions. So there's going to be no accountability now when it comes to the lack of quality graduates know how to read and write. Aren't, don't we care about minority kids in inner cities? Well, the, the results are terrible, so they went out and got a guy who's a Bernie Sanders clone, uh, only without the sense of capitalism that Bernie Sanders has. So this guy's blaming everyone, and I think he's going to be a disaster, just like what happened to Portland. We're going to watch this happen in Chicago. It is going to get worse. I heard 1,100 cops are quitting if this guy won. And uh, and they're just going to start applying to places like North Carolina and, and to Florida where people are going to uh, – and to portions of Texas, not Austin, where they support their cops. So we're going to – I think it's going to see an epic disaster. Uh, give us a preview of what's on TV and radio uh, this morning and over the weekend. Coming up over the weekend, uh, we're going to sit. I'm going to that car, uh, part two of the Cardinal Dolan special mm. on One Nation. Part one will be on Friday on Fox and Friends. And we're going to have a, a sit down with Admiral McRaven, uh, leadership principles. We also talk about what's happening uh, in Ukraine and China around the world. You know, he was the one who led the bin Laden raid. Um, uh, the Admiral is uh, in studio. And uh, let me see, what else are we going to have on our show? 
Uh, well, it's, well, I didn't mean it to be, a, still throw that out. To be a quick, a trick question there, Brian. I was, you know, but uh, all please good. don't heckle me. <laughs> uh, and and today, uh, Andy McCarthy, Josh Rogan of the Washington Post, Abby Hornacek, Dan Crenshaw, Burgess Owens, Mark Thiessen. So we're gonna have a pack show, and we're gonna talk about these this Taiwan China thing and what's going on here and getting off our currency and the disaster that would be if we don't stand up and speak out. I don't know what our president does for a living, but he doesn't seem to be doing his job. He doesn't talk to the press, doesn't really meet with people, doesn't set policy. Does that bother anybody? Um, let's just think about that for a second. And uh, in Big Show on Fox and Friends, uh, which includes um, William, who could, I, who could I impress you with? Pete Hegseth, Shannon hey, Bream. There you go. I'm uh, Jones Center, Johnny Ernst. No question about that. Right. There you go. Um, so we're going to have a big show. All right, uh, Brian Kilmeade, uh, Stuart Varney, Shannon Bream, Pete Hegseth. That's an impressive lineup uh, right there. And then uh, be sure to check out on the radio as well, uh, Dan Cranshaw and everyone else Brian just alluded to. And on One Nation, part two of that interview with uh, Cardinal Dolan, Brian's nominee to be the next pope. Thank you, Brian. Happy Easter. All right, uh, go get him, Cardinal Morano. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight, 15 Seconds of Fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. All right, you know, I went long with uh, Brian, so we're actually out of time, uh, but I promise to allow extra time for 15 seconds of fame when I return on Monday. Those of you that are holding, Brandon Ray, Brian Ross, Rick, Mike Cheech, E. Frank, I am sorry. We'll do that on Monday. For everybody, happy Easter, happy Passover, happy whatever you celebrate. I think it's Orthodox Palm Sunday this weekend. Happy holidays to all. I'll be back Monday. Frank Moreno, good day. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.